Before we begin today, I want to apologize for today's program sound quality. We had a failure of a microphone in the Zoom call, but my backup microphone picked up the complete interview, so we were extremely fortunate. But I'm excited about the program today because it would be hard to find anyone who's more experienced in the field of counterintelligence than my guest today on the program, retired Special Agent Jeff Walton. From the Philippines to Europe and other locations around the world, Jeff was always at the forefront of significant counterintelligence investigations and operations including one which was extremely successful supporting the war effort during Operation Desert Storm. On today's podcast, Jeff discusses his life from his days as a young man working operations against the Mafia in Philadelphia until his time when he was called back as an annuitant into service by NCIS to lead the counterintelligence team in the Southeast field office. After retiring again from NCIS, Jeff retired to his home in Florida where he pursues a faith-based investigative career into afterlife experiences and the relationship to heaven and hell. His efforts have led to publishing two books on life after death experience, books, Final Departure, Death is Never on Time, and Divine Return, Death is Never the End. These books are available at jeffwaltonbooks.com as well as Amazon and other bookstores on the internet. Soon the books will be available in the audio format in which you can hear Jeff reading his own works. I hope you enjoy today's program and podcast. And now, the life and career of Special Agent Jeff Wolf. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing this morning? It's great to see you. Uh, after all these years, uh, we've been friends for so long, and uh, I'm excited to, that you've uh, going to join us on the podcast and and uh, talk about your career and some of the other stuff you've been involved in. So, Jeff, thanks for coming on the sh- on the podcast. Well, thank you, Lee. It's uh, really a great initiative that you have going here. This is really important to capture the history of what we've done over the decades. Uh, without you. I really question whether a lot of this have ever seen the late of day, so thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you. Well, I'm excited you've joined us today because, I mean, you've got a, an outstanding career with NCIS, NIS, NCIS, um, and I'm excited that uh, we're going to be talking about today kind of how it impacted. You, know, you, you were there at the agency during some historical moments, and obviously um, what you did, uh, and, and I know only a little bit about it, uh, and I'm excited to hear about it, uh, about what you did during your career uh, is only going to make this, uh, the podcast so much uh, more interesting. And, and that's, um, I do have a lot of uh, new agents that uh, listen to it. And, um, you know, and, and I always say, what can the old, older agents, uh, the retired agents provide as wisdom uh, to the new, new, new agents coming in? Because that's really what they really appreciate is uh, you guys talking about the things that you learned in your career. So please go right ahead. Tell me about yourself uh, before you joined the agency. Um, in, you know, you're growing up, and where'd you grow up, and, and how did you find out about a little agency called NIS? Well, I, uh, I was born in the 50s. I grew up in a small uh, suburb in southeast Pennsylvania, about 20 miles south of Philadelphia. Typical middle-class neighborhood, 50s and 60s. I played sports like every kid did. Um, I was uh, formally trained uh, as a trumpet player starting in the third grade, and I continued uh, playing the trumpet up until um, uh, high school. And I still played sports. And in the 60s, the rock wave hit. The Beatles, all the major groups um, started, and that really, uh, really captured my attention and so I um, the trumpet wasn't exactly a, a rock and roll instrument at the time so I taught myself the bass guitar and I actually started playing professionally uh, in a band 
uh, was a member of the union. We played in nightclubs. And at one point in time, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a professional musician. But I got tired of uh, playing in smoke-filled bars and nightclubs, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, watching a bunch of drunks uh, in some cases. So uh, also about the, the mid-60s, uh, Detroit started to produce the real muscle cars, sure. the Chargers, the Camaros, and I love the horsepower. And so I bought a 65 GTO while I was in high school. And then I decided I wanted to be a professional drag racer. So after high school, instead of uh, going to college, I enrolled in Spring Garden Institute's Automotive Training Center, which was um, in Philadelphia. And it was a very extensive school. We learned everything from transmissions to electricity to uh, tune-ups, uh, dynos, um, and my final year I was an advanced machine shop. I would take an engine out of the junkyard and completely remachine it. And as I was doing that, I, I saw an ad in the paper uh, that was uh, posted by a professional drag racer by the name of Al Graver, who had a company called Speedway Engineering. So I answered the ad, I applied, and I got the job. So he took me under his wing for the next two years and uh, taught me how to build race cars. He had been in circle track uh, sprint cars, but he progressed to uh, drag racing because that's where the money was. So I worked in this machine shop, and uh, he had a funny car called Tickle Me Pink. <laughs> and for those who aren't uh, familiar with funny cars, it's a, it's a fuel funny car. Mm -hmm. It's a professional class. Uh, today, a fuel funny car has 10,000 horsepower. It goes uh, in uh, 1,200 feet. It does that in less than three in less than four seconds. Wow. 300 miles an hour That's plus. So these things were monstrous that I loved working on. I helped build uh, Jungle Jim Lieberman's car. He had a brand new car. And I got around some of the big stars. And I really liked it. And it got to the point where my boss, who had multiple injuries from crashes, said, look, I want you to go out on tour. I want you to take the car. Because oh, wow. we used to tour up and down the East Coast. So he was grooming me to, to run the car. I was going to have to get my... Uh, NHRA professional license, and uh, it's like getting a pilot's license. You have to pass a test. Uh, so I was in the process of doing that, and in early 1972, I got a letter from the Selective Service. And this is when Vietnam was still um, still engaged, still going on, and uh, I was drafted. Uh, there was a lottery system uh, in still in play, and uh, I was told I had to report. And I had a, uh, a contingency plan because I knew that was always an, uh, a possibility. Mm -hmm. So I opted to go in the Navy. I went down to the recruiter and said, hey, will you take me? And he said, sure. We're just going to add an extra year to, you, to, uh, to your enlistment. So I opted to go into aviation. And after boot camp in San Diego, I was assigned to the USS Cleveland, which was on maritime combat duty uh, off the coast of Vietnam. Now, this was about a year or two after most of the uh, ground forces had withdrawn. So the Navy was picking up the slack and running combat ops from ships. Uh, the carrier carriers would go on what was called the line, but our ship would go far north. We'd go north of the, of the demilitarized zone, the DMZ, and we'd be out of sea during the day, but at night we would darken ship, go in, we were singleton, and we would launch Cobras 
and they would go in and attack the uh, Viet Cong supply lines and really anything that moved. Wow. Uh, during the day, we, we'd, uh, we'd get away from uh, the artillery batteries, and they did have them, and they shot at us, but they missed. Um, and our gunner's mates would uh, mount 50 caliber uh, machine guns on the, on the guard rails, side rails, wow. and blow up um, Viet Cong rice barges who were being sent in to try to, to supplement their food. We also had, uh, we had SEALs on board. We would uh, offload and unload uh, Marines. Uh, we had some search and rescue helos. So it was, it was nonstop. Every night was the 4th of July. Wow. I mean, at night it was dark and you saw nothing but nonstop tracers, explosions. There was a lot of combat going on well into uh, 1972. Now, um, When I, when I was um, on the ship, the Paris Peace Accords were, were starting. And in January 1973, they signed them. And then finally combat was stopped. So uh, around March, we, uh, we were part of Task Force 78. We were sent into Haiphong Harbor to sweep mines. Wow. The U.S. had dumped hundreds of mines in that harbor. And so we led the flotilla, and we were a steel-hulled ship, and we had the wooden-hulled minesweepers behind us. And I always wondered, why are we doing this? Uh, we're going to set one of these babies off. Why are you leaving? So fortunately, yeah, so fortunately we didn't, but we uh, unloaded uh, 53s, the H-53s, and they would drag these magnetic orange poles and these other devices through the water trying to detonate these, these mines. And uh, they set off a grand total of one mine in 54 <laughs> days. But we did have one mine explode spontaneously. It detonated about 100 yards from our uh, fantail. Luckily, it didn't do any damage. So that was the uh, that was the sum total of our success in Haiphong Harbor. Wow. Now, because of my uh, my background in mechanics, um, I started to study for the. Um, Aviation machinist made test. Okay. That's an air, aircraft power plant. I didn't go to A school, but I studied for the test and I passed it. And so I was a, a third class petty officer in EDJ. And I was transferred to uh, NASQB Point in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And I was assigned uh, Fleet Composite Squadron 5, where I worked on A4 Skyhawks, the jets, mm -hmm. and also the S2. Uh, anti-submarine warfare that had the reciprocating engines. The Viking. And I, I worked on the engines. Wow. And while I was there, I got into scuba diving, I got into skydiving. And it was really my time in the Philippines for the first, my first time there that really, there were two events that really changed the uh, trajectory of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one in 75, I got a call by the, uh, by, from an individual, I was in the shop a guy by the name of Tom Lear, who's now an IS agent. He said, hey, we got your name from someone that we trust and we think you might be able to help us. So I went over to uh, Nizra Subic and met uh, Tom and Jerry Steele. And I said, we'd like you to work undercover for us. We have a real problem with drugs. Ships are pulling into port. Sailors are getting very, very um, potent heroin and other drugs and they're dying from overdoses. Wow. So I agreed. First, I had to demonstrate that I could buy drugs in the Philippines, and then when I when I passed that test, 
then I started to uh, disappear from the squadron every month. And I'd be flown to Hong Kong or Thailand or Taiwan or Indonesia. And I would set up buys with the local dealers. And I told them that I was a rogue sailor, that I was in business. I wanted to buy drugs from them and I was going to send, sell them to the sailors. So what we would do is we would set up by bus. I'd, I'd make two or three transactions and then the fourth local law enforcement would swoop in, make the arrest, and then the word went out don't sell to Americans. And when I look back, I realize uh, these were dangerous operations because I went out, I had no cell phone, I had no pager, mm -hmm. no one knew where I was, and I'd find myself in a farmhouse 20 miles from Jakarta dealing with uh, drug traffickers. And they'd come out and they'd look at me, they'd go back and they'd whisper, they'd come back out and finally decided, all right, we'll do business here with a gringo. Another time I ended up in the walled city in Hong Kong, again, by myself, and um, I survived. Uh, and it really impressed on me that I liked law enforcement, that I enjoyed the operations, and I was uh, really impressed with the quality of the agents. I went out with Bud Aldridge, uh, Dan Foley, mm -hmm. uh, Bert Cogdell, Eddie Hemphill, the famous Eddie Hemphill. Of course. And, and um, it, was, it was great. The second really sort of life-changing event was not too long after I arrived in the Philippines, I started to see these rickety old Vietnamese fishing trawlers and fishing boats arrive in the harbor. Hmm. And these were not seaworthy boats. These were just for local fishing. And I saw that these people were desperate to escape from Vietnam. And that, that didn't square with the media narrative that we were hearing back in the States that the U.S. was the cause of all the problems and we were warmongers. And if we just got out of Vietnam, everything would be fine. That wasn't true. And I realized that um, somebody had been, been manipulating the press, manipulating us. And that got me to do a lot of reading. And that's when I first started to read about Soviet active measures operations. And that generated uh, an interest in CI for me. So I left the Navy after my enlistment expired. And before I did, I, I had a sit down with um, Dan Foley, who was the sack of uh, Nisra Subic at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, um, when you go to college, major in English. Don't major in, in anything else. Mm -hmm. We can teach you how to investigate, mm -hmm. but we can't teach you how to write. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was great advice. Although I didn't major in English, every time I had an opportunity for, um, to take an elective, it was English composition, writing, um, writing courses. I just drilled, uh, drilled down into anything related to business communications, and it really helped me later on. I left the, uh, the Navy in 76, uh, uh, went back to Pennsylvania, and enrolled in Westchester University. And I did it in three years. I wasn't uh, like my high school years where I kind of just kind of slid by. It, it was a job for me, and I gave it 100%. In my uh, senior year, I did an internship with the Pennsylvania Crime Commission. And that was an education because I was taken out on the streets with um, former Philadelphia PD detectives. And we were surveilling the mafia, organized crime. And at the time, it was the Angelo Bruno um, family, 
And I'll never forget, I was in the Melrose Diner, famous Melrose Diner in, in South Philly, where all the mafiosos would hang out. Joe took me to lunch. And as we're sitting there having our meal, in walks Frank Sindone, one of the major lieutenants and one of his uh, henchmen. And so as we finished our meal, they were starting to leave, and Joe said, go out and surveil them, get their plate number. So I go out, and uh, they go already get to their limo, and I go out, and they turn, and they look at me. So I start fumbling with a cigarette uh, vending machine, mm-hmm. and um, they, they knew what I was doing. So Frank Sindone turned around, looked me right in the eye, and slowly waved at me like, now we know who you are. Well, I had the, I had the last laugh, because a few months later, they found, found uh, Frank Sindone's body in a plastic trash bag in the trunk of a car and he was full of bolts. Wow. So it was, a, it was a rough life, but it was a great education for me. And while I was with the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, I started to send out 171s like mm-hmm. everybody else. And I wanted to work for NIS, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, NIS got back to me and they said, uh, sorry, my friend, you don't <laughs> have enough experience. Oh, wow. Okay? That's what they said. You don't have the experience. So, um, I got picked up by the Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, but there was a three-month delay in, uh, in the hiring process, so I did a stint with um, Burns International Security Services. Oh, wow. Interesting. And they, they wanted me to go undercover in the Johns, Johns Mansville Corporation. There was a big plant in New Jersey, and they had a major drug problem, so they wanted me to go undercover. I went through the new employee indoctrination program and I learned how to make insulation. Uh, but at the same time I was collecting, I built cases and then ultimately they fired a number of employees who were heavily involved in drugs and on the job while they were high working this equipment. So finally in December of uh, 79, I reported to the Interstate Commerce Commission's uh, Philadelphia Regional Office. And I was assigned to their Bureau of Investigations and Enforcement I was a special agent, and the credentials that they gave us really had power. I could walk into any regulated carrier, and at the time, ICC controlled all the surface transportation of the U.S., mm. all the trucking, all of the railroads, all of the surface barges. So I could walk into a regulated carrier, I could flash my creds, and they had to open their books. I could go through their bank records, their um, business records and, and look for fraud or whatever I was looking for at the time. Mm-hmm. We had a whole team of uh, attorneys in the office and they always said you could judge the um, status of an agency by the time that they started. And we didn't open until 9 a.m., believe it or not. <laughs> that was the start of business for, mm-hmm. uh, for ICC. Wow. Well, about a year into my t- tour, uh, my SAC said, look, I'm going to put you on a special assignment. And there was a team working out of the ICC headquarters in Washington that were on a grand jury that had been impaneled in the uh, Northern District of New York. And the U.S. attorney at the time was George Lowe. And uh, the target of the investigation was the Delaware and Hudson Railroad in Albany, New York. And they had received hundreds of millions of dollars in federal aid, and they were going bankrupt. So they knew there was something wrong. And so we went in as a team, we had IRS with us, we had some Department of Transportation agents. And so we, uh, we drilled down to figure out what was going on. And we came up with a um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 
series of violations in commercial bribery. And um, what we discovered is that the railroad was selling off their assets to the Mexican government and making huge profits, and this money was disappearing. So uh, in the process of, of gathering the evidence, um, we had to do interrogations of some of the, of the uh, major corporate officials in the Delaware and Hudson. There were people in the Norfolk and Southern Railway. We were in these plush offices. And that was my first uh, experience to um, uh, interrogate people in, in um, senior positions. Well, about January of 81, while I was still part of this uh, grand jury uh, investigation, I was in Syracuse where uh, George Lowe's office was. And we were getting ready to uh, meet that uh, morning the team in uh, one of the AUSAs. And I got a, a telephone call in my hotel room. And it was Dale Lang wow. from Nisra, Nisra Philly. Yeah, Dale Lang. He said, Dale Lang said, hey, Jeff. I found your 171 in the bottom drawer of Frank Stagliano's filing cabinet. It's been sitting there. He said, are you still interested? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, you are. I am, because we had gotten word that the ICC was going to be disbanded. I said, oh, yeah, I'm interested. So I screened in, in May uh, of uh, 80, 84, 81, excuse me, and um, that was in Philly. And then by August, I was offered a job at Norfolk Fleet Support, which I took. I was happy to leave. Um, I liked my, my group in the ICC, but the ship was going down. Mm -hmm. So I got to, to Norfolk, and it was a, a really busy office. My first year was, was general crimes. I loved the work with, with homicides, major arsons. Uh, fraud cases, paying allowance, and it was at that time that I um, I was taught the uh, the value of interrogations mm -hmm. and how to do them properly and how important they were in a case. Um, we were expected then to spend hours with a subject until they confessed. Now, if they were innocent, they were innocent. Mm -hmm. So um, I learned very early on that there's a difference between an interview and an interrogation, and I see that confused today. An, uh, an interview is nothing more than a, a tactic to gain information, but an interrogation is to gain a confession. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes as agents we, we lost sight of that. We were also uh, taught to get very detailed sworn statements anytime we had a confession and to lock them in so that they tried to recant later on, which I saw them do. Uh, we had them locked into a statement. And uh, really, my, um, my enlisted time really helped because I could identify with some of the sailors that were in the interrogation room in front of me. And, um, it helped me connect with them. And one of, the, one of the techniques that I learned, and Stan White talked about it in basic school, was rationalize and minimize. Never lose your temper. Screaming and yelling and threatening will never get you anywhere. Uh, it'll only shut things down. One of the things we were also taught is to never have an object in between you and the subject. In other words, we didn't have a desk. I had my chair facing the subject's chair. Sometimes I would get closer to get in their space, and I'd talk them through, and I was their advocate. I was there. I was the buffer between the cold justice system and um, them. And um, I enjoyed it, 
and um, we got some good results. I also learned that if you're the lead interrogator, the secondary agent needs to know when to keep quiet. Uh, I had a case one time where the subject was just ready to confess. Mm -hmm. He dropped his head. He was silent. He stopped denying, and I felt it coming, and then my partner just broke in with something totally unrelated. Totally broke the, the, um, the atmosphere in the room, and we had to start all over again, but we got him to confess. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'll give you a couple of examples of some of the cases that we did. I mean, we every, every office had major cases, so these sure. weren't any sure. necessarily any better. But um, we did use some of the techniques. I don't know if they use these techniques today. Uh, we had uh, an active uh, EM club there on the base. They would get out at whatever it was, midnight or 1 a.m. One night, I got a duty call. Uh, a sailor came out of the, um, the EM club, and another sailor attacked him. He sliced his throat with a straight razor and shot him with a uh, a flare gun. Wow. Um, the sailor survived, but uh, he couldn't really identify as a sailor. So uh, I put together a, uh, a wanted poster, did an identikit, and then uh, we just um, canvassed all the piers. There were dozens of ships in. We delivered the um, wanted poster. And then about a day later, I got a call from an XO, and I said, he said, hey, I've got a sailor here that needs to talk to you. And the sailor said, yeah, my, uh, my buddy came back to the ship and said, I think I just killed somebody. So I brought him in, interrogated, and he copped out. And um, I recall I got five years in, uh, for attempted homicide. We had another case. Um, yeah, I was a duty agent. I was actually walking up to a friend's uh, house with a six-pack of beer, and my pager went off. And it was the USS America. Uh, I called the quarter deck, spoke to the officer of the deck. He said, yeah, well, um, we've had six fires here in two days. We don't think they're accidental. So I, I rolled. I got to the ship uh, in port. And as I was walking up to the forward brow, they called away a fire party. Mm. It was another fire at a JP-5 fueling station. And um, then I knew it was a major case. The captain was very worried. So we deployed a, a whole team of agents like you would on a big case like this. And as we started doing screen, screening interviews, I noticed there was a master at arms who kept popping up at the scene, so he would report a fire. So um, we brought him in. and. Um, he got down. He said, yeah, I was doing it. And I remembered as I was doing the interrogation that their television studio in the USS America had been burned to the ground. It was millions of dollars of damage. Mm. And it had been ruled an accident. Mm. And I said, uh, you burnt down the television studio too, didn't you? He just lowered his head. Yeah, he did that too. Wow. So, um, uh, and I said, well, why did you do it? He said, well, I had been um, assigned to the chaplain's office, and my duty was to put together the morning devotional video, and they didn't like my work, so they kicked me out. I was pissed off, and for revenge, I started setting fires. So he got, uh, I believe, four years for, for for the arson. And I know that there are ships today that have had major fires, and I've, and I wonder to myself, are the agents getting arson training? Because if you're around ships, you need to know what to do uh, with a major arson. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So um, hopefully that training has taken place. We had another major fire on the USS Independence. Uh, a mess cook set a fire in um, the uh, uh, embarked squadron's ward room, and the fire was so hot it actually started to melt the flight deck. Wow. Um, yeah, so the, uh, we had a good agent in the office who caught them out, and um, he went behind bars as well. Now, one of the um, privileges of being in fleet support was that we always had a bullseye on our back for uh, agent afloat assignments. If they needed an agent afloat, they came to us first. Well, I never, I never had to go afloat full time, but uh, during my time there, our SAC, who, uh, who was the SAC at the time, John Walsh, said, hey, I need you to go out on the Eisenhower. The agent afloat, uh, Steve Simpson, uh, has to come in for a trial. Um, it'll just be a couple of weeks. So I talked to Steve. He said, yeah, it's a quiet ship. No problems. I'll testify. I'll be out there in a couple of weeks. No problem. So I go out, I get on the ship, and we weren't even out of the Norfolk Narrows, that channel that leads out to the sea. Mm -hmm. And I got called. Somebody had gone on to a uh, whale deck, uh, whale boat deck, and tore the living crap out of it with an axe or something. Wow. Tore up the boat, smashed everything in sight. So within less than an hour of being uh, underway, I had a major 6U. And from there, it was just, uh, it was, we were on a roll. It was one thing after another. Somebody stole some of the, uh, at the time, high-end radios off of some tractors on the flight deck. Some of the CWs that Steve uh, had recruited were buying cocaine. Um, we had a Puerto Rican gang that was planning to uh, um, invade the armory, take over the armory. Uh, somebody lost the keys to the reactor room. And then one night we were, we were at, at sea, and I got a call from the XO about 2 in the morning. He says, hey, got to get up to the uh, UNREP um, station. This was a station where we would, um, the ship would fuel a, a destroyer, a smaller ship that would come alongside. And they would hook up the fuel lines, and when they energized the system, fuel went shooting everywhere, and they, literally the deck was flooded with uh, a form of JT-5. Someone had gone in with a hammer and smashed all of the uh, fuel sample fittings so that when the system uh, was turned on, it was a major disaster. So uh, I had a lot of fun on that <laughs> ship. And uh, I had no, no second agent. I'm not, I'm not whining. I, mean, I know a lot of agents had a lot worse, a lot bigger cases. But that was the days when we had an IBM selector. We had no computer, no yeoman. So mm -hmm. it was a busy time. I'm glad I did it, but uh, I was glad when Steve finally, <laughs> a month and a half later, met me in Fort Lauderdale and took the ship over again. Yep. Now, uh, when I came on in the, the 80s, um, 1980s later became dubbed the uh, Decade of the Spy. Sure. And um, I was pulled my second year into the FCI program voluntarily. They said, hey, do you want to do this? I said, sure. And so I started getting CI cases, started going to schools, went to headquarters to, to learn the, uh, the art and the, and the, tr and the trade. Uh, I started giving um, CI awareness briefings, and nobody liked gift collectors. In those days, it was a duty that everybody shunned. And I realized that nobody wanted to do it because the, the boys were briefing were, were very, um, they were very boring. Yeah. 
So I did my own briefing. I put together a new briefing that was tailored to the local environment, local area. I started getting people that would come up and say, hey, you know, while I was overseas, uh, I met a Russian who wanted me to send postcards every time we were in port. So I was getting a lot of contacts from, uh, from the briefing program. Um, and as I was as getting my feet wet, we had the uh, first big case that I was involved in, and that was uh, IS-1 Brian Patrick Horton. Uh, he was assigned to the Fleet Intelligence Center of Europe and Atlantic, and he was in the nuclear strike planning branch. Now, a month before that case opened or broke, I went over and I gave Captain Duncan, who was the CEO of Fictor Land at the time, I gave him one of my, uh, my briefings. Mm. I explained to him how the hostile intelligence community, how the, our adversaries worked, and we were all done. He said, thank you. He said, you know, I trust all my people. They're thoroughly vetted. They have their security clearances. And my real concern is the cleaning crew. I'm really worried about them coming into the skiff. So can you imagine a year late, a month later, when, a, when an NIS and an FBI agent knocked on his door and said, Captain, you got a major problem. Your IS-1 here has been calling the Russian embassy, Soviet embassy at the time, and offering to sell what was called the uh, SIOP, Single Integrated Operation Plan, basically how we would conduct nuclear war against the Soviet Union. Oh, boy. So, yeah, so we had a major, major espionage case on our hands. And I'll say that the, the Bureau played it straight. It was a joint case. Mm -hmm. um, since uh, Horton was in a skiff, we had to get DIA approval to wire it up for audio and video. And then we set up a command post across a, a courtyard and we had 24-7 shifts. We monitored him, monitored him every time he was at work, made tapes when we saw him do something. And then we had him under um, vehicle surveillance, moving surveillance whenever he was off duty. Um, ultimately, um, uh, he was arrested. Uh, he was interrogated. He confessed. Uh, and this was um, going to be handled. The Bureau said, you guys have it. So he was going to be prosecuted, and he was prosecuted through the uh, military system via court-martial. Mm. And prior to him pleading guilty, his defense counsel worked out an arrangement with the prosecutors that Horton would take a polygraph and to show that he'd only done what he had confessed to doing and nothing else, and that he would undergo polygraphs every year for a certain number of years. Mm. And everybody agreed to that, and um, that became known as the Horton Clause. And so in subsequent espionage cases, that clause would be invoked, and subjects would, would have the opportunity to plead out, get a lesser sentence, and um, still uh, do the right thing. Mm. I believe he got about uh, six years, if I'm not mistaken, wow. because of the pretrial agreement. Now, there was a, another case that no one heard of, I'm fairly certain of, that was a, um, a major CI case. It was uh, Crimson Tide. And that case started when a disgruntled sailor who had been on a submarine, who had just come back from the northern, northern Atlantic, had done some very sensitive operations. And when he came back, he got busted for, I got up for a marijuana. Very unhappy. 
So he decided he was going to get back at the Navy. So he went to the uh, reporter of the Virginia pilot and laid out an entire TSSCI program, including some extremely dangerous operational activity their sub had just done. So I got assigned the case, and I had to go over to Subland, and they had to read me into a program that was subcompartmented into three levels, A, B, and C. It read me all the way up through C, and I was very surprised at the aggressiveness of the program. I was glad we were doing it. So then I, my job was to track down everybody who was involved, find out what happened. And uh, as I wrote ROIs, I had to write two different ROIs. I did one at the secret no foreign level, and then I did a separate one on their comm system at the TSSCI level. And there was one desk officer at headquarters that was read into the same program. So he could read my full ROIs and then he'll, he could give a brief to what was, uh, as to what was going on to the headquarters. Mm-hmm. When I finally got all the, um, my facts straight and I knew it was this sailor, this particular sailor who had uh, compromised a program, we got a, an admiral uh, in, in Norfolk to approach the reporter. And basically he said, look, if you, you publish this article, you could start World War III. And he wasn't exaggerating. He was, our operations were so aggressive that the Soviets would have been ticked off to no end. Mm. So he agreed. The article was killed. And since the, the whole subject was so sensitive, they really couldn't take the uh, sailor to trial because you'd have all the discovery. So they, uh, they NJP'd him out of the Navy. Now, this was... Um, this was also the time, this is mid-80s, 82, 83, when Islamic terrorism started to rear its ugly head and the Navy and the Marine Corps were starting to um, be a target. In, in April of 83, our embassy in Beirut was bombed. And then, as everybody knows, and I know some of your other guests have talked about, in October of 83, a suicide truck bomber drove into our Marine Corps barracks there in Beirut. Sure. I think the final body count was 241 Marines and sailors. So suddenly the commands, uh, they weren't really receptive to getting CI awareness briefings, but they wanted anti-terrorism briefings. So, uh, so many of the ships that headed out of Norfolk would chop to Sixth Fleet, or they'd end up in the uh, Middle Eastern AOR. So uh, about that time, um, John Walsh, our SAC of fleet support, he got a call from Vice Admiral McDonald, who was Commander's Naval Surface Forces Atlantic. And he told John, he said, you know, uh, one of your agents, and actually he was mistaken, it was a Norfolk, um, Norfolk Naval Station agent. So one of your agents just gave uh, one of my commands a, um, a CT brief. And John said, oh, really? Said, yeah. And the Admiral said, uh, have you heard it? Have you seen his brief? John knew something was coming. He said, well, actually, no. He said, well, you should. This is terrible. And needless to say, that uh, John didn't get a warm and fuzzy, so uh, he said, all right, Admiral, we'll, uh, we'll take care of it. So the next thing you know, I'm called into the John's office, and John said, look, we've got we've to mend our relationship here. I want you to go give Admiral McDonald a personal brief on terrorism. I, I wasn't. I wasn't an expert on terrorism, so that forced me to really dive in 
and learn everything I could. And I put together a, a, a desk side brief. I went over to Comnav Surfland headquarters, and it was just myself, the Admiral, and his aide. And I laid out the threat. And one of the threats that I had discovered in my research, some of which came from headquarters, was that Hezbollah had been surveilled and they were detected making test runs with speedboats. And it appeared that they were going to launch some sort of a suicide speedboat attack against the Navy ship. So the, one of the um, items that I stressed to Admiral McDonald was, I said, look, the commands have to come up with rules for engagement. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be able to blow these things out of the water before they get near you. And he agreed. So um, based on that, we launched a, a major program to educate the fleet. And uh, since I was voluntold, they said, well, Walton, since you went over and did this, you're going to do this. You're going to do this program. So I, um, I put together a program that was three-tiered. I had an unclass general all-hands briefing on terrorism. I had a secret no-foreign level for the ward room. And then I had a flag level brief that would be tailored to a particular um, flag officer. And so we started going around and giving the brief. And the next thing you know, Com Treyland, Commander uh, Training Forces Atlantic, said, look, we want to make this a formal program. I said, great. This needs to be done. The, uh, the um, COs, the XOs, the, um, the deploying ships need to know what they're facing. So we, uh, I gave a brief. Uh, the Admiral said, hey, let's do it. Unfortunately, I had just gotten orders, and um, a new agent came in to replace me. Now, just imagine yourself. You're coming into a field office or to a NISRA. You're brand new, and you're told, all right, you're going to take this whole program. You're going to be able to you're going to have to stand up and speak for an hour. It was just unfortunate. The timing was very bad. And as far as I know, the program never went anywhere mm. after the few short months. So, um, and I thought about that when the call was attacked. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, why wasn't there somebody on, on deck with, with a loaded weapon, automatic weapon, ready to fire? I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's always sort of haunted me that we had, they had the um, awareness many years prior, mm. yet we were still attacked. Well, I moved on from there. I had uh, put in uh, a request to go back to the Philippines. Uh, I really enjoyed living there. I liked the work. Uh, so I was assigned to uh, Nisra Subic Bay, and I was specifically assigned to the FCI squad. And um, at the time, Pete Segerston was the squad leader, and his, um, his MO, or his way of running things, was in addition to us um, doing everything we could in the Philippines to protect the, the UN, Navy and Marine Corps, that we were all assigned different countries that we were su to support on a TDY basis. My two countries were Singapore and Malaysia. And at that time, there was no presence in Singapore. Of course, now we have a major field office. So I started making travels to Singapore. I developed some sources, um, picked up some existing sources. I actually did a fraud case in the DAO shop in, in the embassy. Um, also, I went to Malaysia when there was a narcotics suppression operation. I would go and um, meet and uh, develop uh, relationships. 
really the, the hotbed for activity at the time was the Philippines. Mm. And the Subic QB complex was really of strategic importance. It was the largest deep water port that the Navy and Marine Corps had. It was the second largest naval magazine in the world. And it was a major launching um, location for our forces into the Far East. And of course, China was just beginning to emerge as a power. So it's very important. Um, and also, uh, the bases were the second largest employer in the country, in the Philippines. We, we employed thousands of Filipinos and pumped millions, if not billions of dollars into the economy. Uh, we were also surrounded by um, hostile forces. There was an active insurgency in the country. It was a new people's army. And they were controlled by the Communist Party of the Philippines. And there was also a uh, growing uh, Muslim insurgency in the southern Philippines, the uh, MNLF and the MILF, Moro National Liberation, Moro National Liberation Front. And so they were also a concern. And back in uh, 74, well prior to my time there, three CB officers were out uh, patrolling the perimeter of the base. They were on the outside the wire, and they were ambushed by the MPA and killed. So um, that was always at the forefront of our minds. Uh, also, when I got into the Philippines, this would have been the summer of 84, uh, Ferdinand Marcos was the president. And he had been the president uh, since uh, 1965. A lot of tension in the country. Um, they had been under martial law at one point for nine years. Uh, he re rewrote the Constitution. He was jailing his uh, political uh, enemies. And he was getting millions from the U.S., from the Inter International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And his uh, key political uh, adversary, a guy by the name of Benigno Aquino, who was a senator at one time, he jailed him, and he ultimately released him after eight years in prison, and Aquino left the country and then decided to come back. Mm -hmm. And this was a year before I got there, and when he arrived in Manila, when he got out of the aircraft, he was assassinated right in front of the television cameras. Yeah. So that was the, um, the, the type of uh, atmosphere that we were all working in, and really that corruption really helped strengthen the CPP and the NPA. So for a, an agent like me, it was uh, all the SCI agents, we were in a target-rich environment. Um, we were um, focusing on the NPA. We were obviously concerned about other assassinations. So we got out of the office. Uh, in those days, you didn't sit in your desk and, and go through the Internet and, and look for information. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. but we didn't have that. Sure. So we had to go out, and we had to meet the locals and ingratiate ourselves with the local uh, Philippine constabulary, and develop sources. And uh, I was very fortunate. I got a, some very good sources, some um, through the assistance of uh, other agents and some uh, that I developed on my own. Mm -hmm. And just to give the listener a, kind of a feel for the types of sources that we ran, uh, one of mine was a Philippine constabulary counterinsurgency officer. And he would patrol north of the bases in heavily NPA-infested areas. And then when I was running them as a source, uh, I financed his operations. I also, with the 
with the permission of the office, I got him ammunition. Mm -hmm. So he was running his own mini counterinsurgency operation. And then he recruited his own subsource network using the funds that I had given him. And he would track down and he would capture some NPA members. Some were Sparrow Unit members, assassins. And he would, uh, he would literally lock them up in his own home jail. He'd interrogate them. He would get any documents that he had, they had and, and provide them to me. And he also um, carried out field executions. Now, that wasn't something that I promoted or condoned in any way. I was never near him. Mm -hmm. But he reported to me, hey, this is what I was doing. And, uh, of course, word got back to Pete Segerson, and um, I walked into his office one day, and he had this, uh, it was a mock-up of a skull. <laughs> he said, here, you are now Dr. Death. <laughs> so that was my nickname in, in, the, uh, in the office there for a while. Oh, wow. But you had to do what you had to do. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we really had to get this information. Um, and it's during those days that you have things that happen to you that are sort of life-changing. Uh, and I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. It was uh, in November of, of 85, and my store said, look, I want to introduce you to my squad, my crew. You're paying for them. Uh, they're collecting, they're providing the information that I'm getting and that I'm giving to you. So I said, sure. He said, you know, this is going to have to be done in secret. So I want you to come up to the Barrio Fiesta that we're holding in our, in our local Barrio. You're just going to come up as an American, and then we're going to sneak off and have a clandestine meeting with the squad. I want them to meet you. So I even got them uniforms. So I said, great, let's do it. So it was all laid on, and then out of the blue, my parents called. They said, hey, Jeff, we're coming over for a visit. <laughs> great, you know, love to have you. Well, the... the the day that I was supposed to be at the Barrio Fiesta and to meet all the subsources, I had to drive to the Manila International Airport and pick up my parents. So my source said, no problem, we'll do this later. So he got his father to go with him instead of me. And they were in an open Jeep. And as they were driving to this rendezvous point, they were ambushed by the NPA. Oh, wow. They hit him with grenade launchers, M16s. There wasn't much left of either one of them. Mm. And if it hadn't been for my parents, I would have been sitting in that Jeep. Wow. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Wow. So um, divine intervention is, is how I view that. Yeah, God works because in it wasn't, ways. God works in mysterious ways. It wasn't my time. Yeah. So uh, we had a lot of other sources. We were very concerned about the NPA moving around the base. They worked at night. Sometimes I would come back from a source meeting and I'd drive through a whole squad of them. They were armed, but I just kept going in my car. I didn't slow down. They didn't bother with me. They didn't shoot at me. Uh, so that was sort of the life that we lived uh, in those days. Sure. Uh, I had another interesting source who was a self-trained explosives expert. And what he would do with his crew is he would go over to the bombing ranges that we had. We had live, live fire bombing ranges. Mm -hmm. Uh, at some of the beaches uh, in the surrounding area. And his crew would tunnel down and find unexploded ordnance. Sometimes these are 250-pound bombs. And he knew how to defuse them. He would take the H6, which was the explosive compound, and he'd sell, he'd sell it. He was honest. He said, look, I sell it, but I sell it to fishermen. 
He said, the problem is the NPA, NPA is out there doing the same thing. Wow. So they're making bombs. So we reported all this. We weren't real uh, popular with the EOD, but it was the truth. Uh, so these are the sorts of things that we had to report on to keep the Navy uh, aware of what was happening. Um, hey, Jeff. I had another? Yeah. So uh, one question about uh, the Philippines. Yeah. I've heard all kinds, of, and maybe the listeners would like to li hear about how it's like the Wild West. Um, and yeah and uh, listen to the stories that I've heard over the years about operating in Post City and conducting operations. Can you touch on that a little bit just outside the base there in Post City and what it was like to work in a place like that? Yeah, it was kind of like working in Las Vegas on steroids. Oh, wow. You had bars and nightclubs. Um, you had sailors. Of course, you had the, the fleet landing there. You had a huge naval complex. Uh, you know, bars were, were, were wild of uh, bar girls, um, bands, and um, there were also bad guys that were the enemy mixed in. Sure. Uh, we knew that there was the, the CPP was coming into town, going to some of these bars. Mm. And I was actually in one shop, and I saw a, a, a Soviet intelligence officer walking right Wow. And he didn't, and, and he was a solid pro. We never established eye contact, but I knew who he was. And I think he might have known who I was as well. Sure. Um, it was it was wild. Yeah. Uh, you, um, the law was not applied like we would apply it, or at least we used to apply it in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, interrogations were um, physical. You never you were never present during an interrogation of a, a criminal subject with uh, the uh, military, mm -hmm. police, um, because they would they break the law, our law. Yeah. Um, that was the it, Philippine it was, military police. That was the Philippine military, Philippine police. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, sources who, um, they were assassins on the side. Wow. So you always had to be very guarded. You always had to make sure that you stayed on the right side of the law. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we needed information. We needed sure. to know what was going on. We wanted to protect uh, the Navy and Marine Corps. And so you had to get out there and mix it up. So um, it, it was wild. Mm -hmm. um, you could spend hours just, you could have a separate series mm. on the Philippines. Oh, yeah. You know, we had scores of agents. So, um, and then you had the backdrop of all the uh, political instability. Mm. Um, some of your listeners might remember the older ones that um, Tom Brokaw interviewed um, Fidel Marcos on TV. It was Nightline or one of these shows. Mm -hmm. And basically, Brokaw said, you know, Mr. President, it doesn't look like you have free and fair elections. And Marcus said, well, nonsense. As a matter of fact, we'll have an election. So he called a snap election on ABC TV or whatever it was, NBC, CBS. <laughs> so that, that kicked into gear major tensions. Again, it got, it got the, uh, all the uh, Department of Defense um, seniors on edge. And... Um, he held the election, wow. and it was obviously fraudulent. And they had television cameras in the Philippine Plaza where they had all these computers set up, these voting machines, mm -hmm. and live on television, the um, the Comelec. This is a commission on election integrity. Mm -hmm. All of these workers got up from their their uh, terminals and walked out. They said, "This is all fraud. These numbers aren't right. Something's going on." Mm -hmm. So uh, that really um, 
propelled the country into, into chaos. Um, Marcus claimed victory, said I won the election, but everybody else knew that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So the, the, basically the people revolted. Hundreds of thousands, and possibly it may have gotten up to the millions, wow. poured into this major um, uh, four-lane highway that traveled, uh, cut through the metropolitan uh, Manila area called ESSA, mm-hmm. and they were protesting. And at the time, um, Cardinal Jaime Sin was the senior religious leader in the country. Mm-hmm. And Marcos used to confide in him, because Marcos was Catholic, mm-hmm. a, at least a good appearance. And unbeknownst to him, um, one of our agents had developed uh, Cardinal Sin as a source. So we were getting feedback as to what Marcos was thinking. And later on, uh, Cardinal Sin announced publicly that the public should participate in the revolt and that they should act as human shields if there was any military uh, confrontation. Wow. So um, as things came to a head, um, the Armed Forces Vice Chief of Staff, Fidel Ramos, and the Defense Minister, Juan Ponce and Reilly, they defected. They said, we've had enough. Uh, Marcos is corrupt. So they each went to a separate military base, Camp Crami, Camp Aguinaldo. They said, we're, uh, we're revolting. So that kicked off the People Power Revolution. Um, Marcos still had his Vice Chief of Staff, he had a lot of loyal members that were supporting him. So when that happened, um, I got told, okay, you're going to Manila. You're going to supplement Steve Eisel's uh, office, mm-hmm. and you're going to be a collector. So uh, they teamed me up with uh, Steve Smith, okay. who's a former Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation informant, uh, agent, rather, mm-hmm. and he's brand new to the Philippines. So I got him in the car, and I gave him a, an overview of what was going on. And for the next week or so, we were collectors. And one of the things we would do is we would bluff our way into the military bases at uh, Air Force bases, Army bases. So we went in to collect. Mm-hmm. Who's doing what? Mm-hmm. Are they preparing for an attack? So we fed all this information back. And at the same time, I think one of your other guests mentioned uh, Chris Calamer, the late Chris Calamer. Sure. was up at Suvik. And he had recruited uh, the governor of Zambales, Governor McSaisai. And he was actually in his residence governor's residence when the governor got a call from Marcos and Marco because they were friends and Marcos said look I'm going to attack I've had enough I'm going to crush this revolt and so the governor told Chris Chris went back to the office shot off an immediate IIR and my understanding is that it made its way to President Reagan and President Reagan instructed Senator Laxall to um, call President Marcos and issue the famous uh, order it's time to cut and cut clean. So uh, eventually, um, Marcos gave up. He left office. We flew him back to Hawaii, and Cory Aquino took office. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't smooth sailing sure. after uh, Cory Aquino took office because after she got in, we had a total of six coups wow. following her appointment as president of her, her election. One of the ones that um, I remember distinctly was in July of 86. Then Vice President Tolentino and a group of the Philippine Constabulary revolted. And they commandeered the Manila Hotel, which was uh, the biggest and the most famous hotel, five-star hotel in Manila. 
they took it over and that was going to be their command post. And um, uh, they took it over for 37 hours. So Zubik uh, sent me back down with Julio de Guzman. Some uh, rem may remember his name. Oh, sure. And, and when we got there, Steve said, I want you to go in the hotel and I, we need to know what's going on. Well, they had a barricade, they had a gauntlet of renegade PC officers armed. And in order to get in the hotel, you had to go through a pat-down. And I didn't know that until I already started in basically this gauntlet that they'd set up. Mm -hmm. It was too late, I couldn't turn, turn away. Mm -hmm. We were posing as a, a foreign journalists. Mm -hmm. So we got up and they did a pat-down. And I was carrying Oh boy. And I, my heart stopped. I thought, all right, this is not gonna end well. Again, divine intervention. The guy did a sloppy pat down. Wow. I'm not going to say where my, my concealed carry was because uh, <laughs> I don't want to give the enemy any um, any uh, um, help. Yeah, sure. But he missed he missed it. So once my heart started to beat again, uh, Julio and I went inside and we uh, collected, saw what was going on. It was basically peaceful. Uh, the uh, revolt ended in 37 hours, and uh, back we came. So this, this was a non-stop type of atmosphere. You were saying, what was it like in the Philippines? You had this carnival atmosphere outside the base mm -hmm. where you go out and have a, a, a beer if you were so inclined and enjoy yourself. But this undercurrent of stress and tension and, and danger was always there. It kept you on your toes. And it was right around this time, I, this was in 86, when uh, Michael Allen, who was a reproduction clerk in the QB Comstay, was caught stealing classified. Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, one of our sources actually saw a classified message out in, in Philippine constabulary hands. So they narrowed it down to um, the QB Comstay, and I know you've had guests before, mm -hmm. uh, Tom Goodman in particular, who talked about the case, so I'm not going to cover the same ground that he did. Yeah. But I want to give you just a few different insights and some things that I don't think people are aware of. Okay. Um, uh, since it was a QB installation, it was a QB case. And QB, I believe Brooks Browning may have been the, uh, the SSA. Okay. SAC, actually. And he assigned it to Gene Jones. And Gene's, Gene did like any agent. He tried to do his best. Uh -huh. Well, since I had had some CI experience uh, at that point, including some operational experience in the country. Our regional director, Bob Orn, who I knew from Norfolk, started to call me in, in his office. And he said, well, what do you think about this case? Can you look, give me your thoughts? So I went through the case file and I started to give him some suggestions. And one of the things that we did is we were trying to smoke out uh, Alan. We wanted to catch him doing something. So we created these bogus IIRs that claimed that there was going to be a illegal weapons delivery, stolen weapons, on a beach north of the, of the base. And we gave specifics of where this uh, alleged weapons delivery was going to take place. Now, this was a bogus, bogus message that we had um, coordinated with Comnat Phil. So the message literally went out, looked like it went to everybody else, but just boomerang back. Mm. So we knew, or at least we thought that Alan would get some of these messages. So we had a whole surveillance team set up to catch him or PC officers that he was with who would 
we thought would interdict these uh, these um, weapons deliveries. He didn't, he didn't bite. So we said, all right, we tried that. So um, as time went on, and it was, and we were starting to get some video uh, of the uh, of Allen's espionage activity. I told Bob Worm, I said, you've got a case here. This is a prosecutor. So he said, well, will you do the interrogation? And I felt very uncomfortable because I wasn't the case agent. I knew how I would feel if I was a case agent. I wouldn't want some other agent sniffing around on my case. But I did what he, he asked me to do. And I said, okay, I'll do it. But I want to have a second agent. And I specifically wanted uh, Tom Goodman. Because yeah. I had worked with Tom and I knew his interrogation skills. Mm -hmm. And I knew he had the ability to do this type of interrogation. So Bob said, fine. So Bob called him up, and then Tom started to drive back and forth from Manila, read the case file, and then we set up a, a, an interrogation strategy for Hanling Allen. And the prosecutor said, don't arrest him until you can catch him with classified on his person. So literally for months, we were doing the video monitoring. Tom would drive back and forth. We had a whole room set up for the interrogation, and we were just waiting. We had bags packed, flyaway bags. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that, that I, I had done while we were preparing is I got Rick Parks, who was our tech agent at the time, mm -hmm. and I had him splice together all the video footage of Alan stealing documents and putting them, stuffing them in his pants or in, in his bag. So I, I had um, Rick put this together, and then there was a, um, a header that would show on the film, and it said uh, event 147, or I forget the number. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to create the impression that we had hours and hours of him stealing classified. Right. So we set this up, had this tape all ready to go with a monitor. So um, we were ready. Unfortunately, one of the days when Tom was driving up to um, stand by to do an interrogation, because we knew when Alan would be on, I heard him on the radio saying, we have a, an accident here. And Tom had driven on to the um, accident scene where Jerry Kramer and oh, uh, man, that's Tom, tough. That's yeah, tough. Um, Doug Casino and Jerry Kramer. Yeah. And then he hit head on by a minibus. Oh my goodness! You know, and, it, and, and I'll tell you, it's those days where your your heart just sinks. You become numb. Yeah. But he did what he had to do, came up, and then ultimately, um, it was terrible. We had to keep going. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Alan was caught on video. A team of agents actually arrested him outside the comm center. I've heard other people say he was arrested at the back gate. No, he was arrested in the parking lot. He never got out into his car. So he was driven up, brought into the room where Tom and I were waiting. And uh, Tom did a beautiful job of getting him through the rights waiver. It took a half hour. And then started uh, the interrogation. And then uh, pre-planned, I turned around and started the video. And uh, he had denied everything up until that point. And then there was event number 147. And there he was on video stuffing classified in his pants he said stop the tape he looked down and he said uh you got me wow so from then then it was my job to, to drill in and try to get 
detailed information to see if he had involvement with any um, hostile intelligence services, third world, third country services that were in the Philippines. And then ultimately, I had to lock him into a very detailed sworn statement, which he signed, where he, he laid out all of his espionage activity, lock him in, and then after he signed it, uh, there was an S3 waiting for us down on the flight line. We grabbed our bags, took, uh, took him and his uh, coveralls, and loaded him on an S3. Flew to Guam, and flew to Hawaii, and then we took him from Hawaii to San Diego to the brig in cuffs. And um, the rest is history. Uh, major court-martial, mm-hmm. he was convicted, and um, sentenced to 10 years. And all the agents really did a great job. I mean, it was a it was a team effort. Yeah, sounds like. Uh, and and it was really good. Yeah. Now, um, what most of your listeners, I would bet that almost all of your listeners, are not aware that there was another espionage case in the Philippines that was very similar, but on a, on a smaller scale. Hmm. Uh, at the time, um, I had a sensitive source working in another facility, and he had access to the ComNavFil uh, communications station. And because of his operational activity, he said, uh, Jeff, look, they're still getting information. Somebody else is leaking. So um, after determining that this guy had credibility, we tried to do um, Allen number two. So we brought in the tech agents mm-hmm. into the ComNavFil communication station, and they went in and installed cameras during an active shift with other communicators, radio men and various people. Well, everybody knew about Alan, and everybody knew how he was caught. So as our agents were up in the overhead, people were walking around making, uh, making uh, you know, uh, imitating a hand-cranked camera. <laughs> we were burnt. Oh, there was wow. no way this was going to work. So we said, all right, I'm out. So what we decided to do, I got a hold of EOD, and I coordinated with ComNavFil. So EOD uh, agreed to create a box, a package. And in that box, they smeared traces of real explosives. They packaged it up, and we coordinated with the Admiral. And so one Sunday evening, when there was a skeleton crew in the comm center, um, EOD put the box by their, their entrance door. So somebody came out and said, hey, we got this uh, suspicious package. So they called base police. Base police said, oh, we're not touching it. They called EOD. Of course, EOD was in on it. They came out, and their explosive-sniffing dog alerted. They said, holy crap, this is a bomb. So everybody had to be evacuated out of the comm center. And as that all took place, our tech agents went in. The place was deserted. And EOD did a great job of dragging this out for hours. They brought in a remote-controlled robot. I mean, they kept telling everybody, oh, we're not done, we're not done. So finally, the agents were done, finished up, they came out, and then EOD said, oh, false alarm, just an empty box. So what took place after that was similar to uh, Allen. We set up a command post in the ComNav fill in two spaces. We had video monitors, we had cameras over all the uh, uh, Xerox machines, over all of the equipment, and we started doing um, night watches. We would uh, um, have somebody on duty 24-7 watching. 
Well, one day I came into the office in, in the morning and Ed Conagonis had had the night shift. He said, hey, uh, Jeff, um, I think I might have gotten something. I'm not sure, but check tape number four, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I brought the tape into my office and I started to play it. And this camera was over a Xerox machine. And one of the reproduction clerks took all the stuff out of his pocket and laid it on top of the machine. Coins and the uh, and that's a paper. And he unfolded the paper real quick and then folded it back. Hmm. I started to slow down the, the, uh, the tape and it looked like some sort of official documentation. And I couldn't read it. So I'm f- trying to figure out how am I ever going to figure this out. So finally, I just turned the monitor upside down and played it again. And in plain sight, there was there were two confidential, no foreign NISIRs. Hmm. They were dated two weeks prior. So this guy's carrying around classified in his pocket that he had taken, and we didn't know what he was doing with. So here we go, we have another case. So right about that time, um, we had established the uh, Southeast Field Office uh, counter-espionage operation you mm. and Bob Lawrence said, you know, we want you to run it. Okay. So I, I told Bob, I said, look, I, I can't do this case and run your, your CE unit. So uh, I turned the case over. I transferred it to Jack Moreshi. And Jack did a great job. He got the individual in. He was a retired senior chief. His name was Ruiz. He was also a reproduction clerk, and he admitted, yeah, I've been taking classified out and sharing it with my brother, who's a PC in the uh, Philippine Constabulary. So he was brought back on active duty by the Secretary of the Navy, just like Alan. He was convicted, and since we only had evidence we could prove of two confidential IARs, he got two years. So he uh, was flown out to uh, the brig in uh, Treasure Island and served two years in prison. Hmm. Leaned him out with a polygraph, and that was it. So that was one of the uh, many cases that we had, but uh, only two of the uh, real, uh, what I would consider to be um, espionage cases. And sometimes I would, um, I hear people, um, they would question, well, why were you so concerned about our classified message messages getting to an ally in the Philippines? What's the rub? Why wasn't that overlooked? Well, the problem was our sources and methods um, involved penetrations, mm-hmm. uh, unilateral penetrations that we had in various groups, and you couldn't depend on the PC or anybody keeping those penetrations confidential. So we had to protect our sources. That's why we did what we did. Wow. What, yeah, one of the, one of the things that um, happened, uh, and you were talking about what was the environment like, Yep. Uh, in the, uh, around the base, it it was always unstable yep. uh, under the surface. And after Aquino became president, a group of unionized employees in the base got the bright idea. They were going to call a wildcat strike, and they were going to strike for more money. Mm. So they unplugged some of the reefers. They all went off base, and they barricaded the front gate. So no one could get on. No one could get off. We had sailors who tried to cross the gauntlet, if you will, and got beat up. Oh, what? Uh, it was bad. And so the um, RDO at the time said, look, we need collectors off base. And we knew that there was one criminal investigator who was out, off, out in town. 
So a, a group of us, Ed Cunagonis, Joe Slagle, uh -huh. Chris Callimer, uh -huh. and myself, we were loaded up in what we would call a night boat, one of those landing boats where the front comes down. And in order to get uh, in town safely, they had to send out a decoy because there were roving bands of these uh, wildcat strikers that would literally attack us if they had seen us. So they sent out a decoy and all the strikers converged on that. And then we went north and they unloaded us, loaded us on a beach. We took cabs down into town and set up a command post and we started to report. Well, one of the, um, one day we found a sailor who was seriously injured. He had really been beaten up bad and needed to go to the hospital. So um, we let everybody know and they said, look, you're gonna have to bring him in through the jungle. That's the only safe way to get in here. There was actually a trail in the um, jungle in the area of Bataan. It was about an hour drive, triple canopy jungle. It was barely visible. You could get a Jeep through it. Well, we took one of those old Plymouth Volaris and loaded this really injured sailor in the back. And it was myself and I believe it was Ed. And we drove through the jungle and that thing made it. We got to the back gate and sure enough, there was a Marine security guard there. He let us in. We got the sailor to the hospital and uh, it might have saved his life. Uh, ultimately, the, uh, the wildcat strike was, was broken and then things got back to normal. But um, you just never knew when those things would happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard the old, the old saying that everything on, on uh, Subic Naval Base was already stolen. It was just a matter of when they were going to remove it. And that was, uh, that was so true. Yeah. Never what? knew. Well, I have a question for you, Jeff, as far yeah, as yeah. operating in that environment, uh, you, certainly during the uh, Marcos regime and then on to, uh, to Corazon Aquino, um, it, it, you're operating in an environment where there are good guys, bad guys on both sides, and you have to somehow operate in the environment. Did you ever get comfortable working in that environment? I mean, to the point where, yeah, this stuff happens all the time, but you know, we, we expect this to happen. So I, I, I feel comfortable working in this environment. It's, it, there's danger all around you, but you have to find a way to do your job. Yeah, you reach that point, but you never reach the point where you morally can reconcile some of the things that are going on. You know they're wrong, yeah. but you know you have a job to do. You know you can't break the law, but you have to have a... Um, a bright line between what they're doing and what we're doing mm -hmm. and um you would you would yeah you would operate there was always an undercurrent of distrust i mean, i didn't trust anybody to be honest with you yeah with a few exceptions um you just never know who was who was bad and who was good mm -hmm. um and particularly from what we were learning from our operations because there was a a, a very active hostile presence in the philippines because of our huge presence in the soviets you had the Chinese, you had the Iranians, you had Iraq, you had Syria, you had all these bad actors that were in Manila, and then you had these centers for Islamic guidance that were popping up throughout the Philippines being financed by Saudi Arabia. And so they, there was always this tension, and you, you never knew who you were talking to. And, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but there was always, if somebody was helping you, usually, there was an angle. They wanted something, to be honest with you. Sure. With a few exceptions, I had an asset 
in an operation, which I'll talk about now in very brief terms. Um, and uh, he was risking his life. He wouldn't take any money. And I was very suspicious of him. But his information was extremely significant. And I asked him, I said, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? You're not getting anything out of this. And he said, sir, he said, I grew up in this town of Long and I was here when the Americans ran this town. He said, we had clean water. We had electricity that never went out. Our streets were clean. The law was enforced. This was a great town. And then when you pulled back and you turned over jurisdiction to the Philippines, it all went down the, uh, the tubes. Mm. I respect you. I respect your country. Mm-hmm. You do good things. Mm-hmm. And I believed him. And, he, and his polygraphs showed that he could be trusted. Sure. But he was um, he was a major asset. Um, who was initially, and I, I like to give credit for other people that do good work. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark Andrews had initially found this guy, mm-hmm. and Mark recognized the uh, CI significance of him, so he turned him over to me. So he gets full credit for finding this guy. So as I worked with him, I realized he had tremendous access. And uh, without getting into the details, his access led me to recruit a um, someone who had, well, let's say he had direct ties to a um, hostile Middle Eastern country. Mm-hmm. And in order to handle him, uh, there was another agency in the, uh, in the embassy um, who we worked with very closely, and they were very supportive. They sent down a tech expert who crafted a disguise for me so that I could meet this individual who was um, Muslim, of the Muslim faith. And I, uh, I posed as a Canadian businessman. And uh, I did the, um, they wanted me to do the disguise to protect me from retribution. Mm-hmm. So um, through the course of this operation, um, it just got better and better. It finally got, in terms of take, and I can't discuss it here because of the uh, of the nature of our, of our uh, unclassed uh, sort of venue here. Sure. But one thing that did happen is that when I had one of my clandestine meetings with him, he said, um, you know, he had, an, he had an alias. He called me by my name. He said, there's going to be a bombing um, next Saturday night at midnight. And he named a very senior Philippine government official. So this house is going to be bombed. Of course, I went back and I reported, and of course, flash messages are going back and forth. Everybody's on pins and needles, and uh, that the week passed, and nothing happened. On that day, not, 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 not even a firecracker one. So everybody kind of exhales and ah, falls Well, exactly one week later, at the exact same time, boom, a bomb went off. And, um, there was some sort of technical problem, a logistical problem that caused them to delay. And I'll tell you, when that bomb went off, mm. that got the elephants dancing. I bet. It got DOD dancing as well. And someone um, in LSD said, hey, uh, excuse me, but there's a DOD instruction that says that no member of the Department of Defense can participate in an operation in which actual acts of terrorism are being committed. So I had to turn over my operation to another agency mm. and do a clandestine turnover. And prior to doing that, um, the chief, who was uh, the chief of station, I won't mention anything else, mm. he was very worried. He says, you know, 
I've got to go brief the, um, the, the, the chief, the director of this national uh, intelligence agency. Uh, what we've done is it's unilateral. Sure. He's going to have me for goat soup. <laughs> and I'm, think, I'm thinking to myself, uh, you don't know the Philippines. They're just <laughs> going to sit there. They're going to passively listen. They're going to smile. They're going to thank you, and that's going to be it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened. Sure. He said, I can't believe it. They didn't ask any questions. <laughs> well, unfortunately, by that time, our headquarters had kicked in, and they said, well, Walton's going to get killed. You know, he's going to be compromised to the local government, or worse, to the adversary. Let's get him out of there. So they cut me emergency orders at headquarters. And I kept trying to tell everybody, wait, wait, wait. this is not going to turn out to be this. Sure enough, they never asked. The chief never asked our chief who I was. And so we did the turnover. Uh, another agency took the operation over and they went. Mm -hmm. But the, the motions for my, my PCS had already been started. And at the time, um, my wife Tess was pregnant. Mm -hmm. we, had, we had two girls already and um, she was six months pregnant. And she was headed down to Manila to finish up some paperwork. Mm -hmm. And she, as she left the base, Carolyn decided she was going to come early. So she broke loose. <laughs> and Tess initial, immediately started massive hemorrhaging. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, it was not good. It was a, a, a placenta abruption. Fortunately, there was a Philippine Navy chief who was in a Jeep who just happened to drive by her and saw her literally getting ready to die. Oh, my God. Got her in the Jeep, sped to the hospital. They stabilized her. At the time, I was actually involved with a polygraph of one of my assets that I had to terminate as I was leaving. Mm -hmm. So I get this call over the radio. Hey, call the hospital. Well, okay. I call the hospital, and I get this petty officer, and I said, you know, this is who I am. And I, what's up? I was thinking that my oldest daughter had had, had, had an accident or something. Uh -huh. He says, oh, sir, you're the man with the baby, with the new baby. I said, uh, <laughs> that's not me. My wife's only six months pregnant. There was a long pause, and then he said, uh, let me get the doctor. And I knew, oh boy, here we go. So I said, Mr. Walton, um, your wife has just delivered the baby prematurely. She's two pounds, two ounces. Uh, we're keeping her alive, but she needs to be transferred immediately to the neonatal intensive care unit. So I rush over to the hospital. Tess is in the emergency room. She had just come out of surgery. She was white as a sheet, but she was alive. And there's Carolyn in this portable incubator. And there's a, there's a Navy lieutenant commander doctor who would look like a, a, a bellows breathing for her. He said, listen, we've got to get her down to the flight line. So we went down by ambulance. We loaded up in one of the old C-117, the propeller-driven planes. Mm -hmm. And it was still the uh, remnants of rainy season, so the air was turbulent. So we're up in the air, and it was kind of like a scene out of um, an Indiana Jones movie. This plane is going on pitching and yawing, oh and this, inc this incubator is rolling back and forth. I'm trying to hold on to it so the doctor could breathe for Carol and keep pumping air in it. My goodness. So finally, we got her to, the, to, the, to Clark. She survived, and then about a month later, after she was stable, they medevaced her back to Washington, and um, where I was, in D.C. She was a hospital, in a hospital, children's hospital, and she turned out perfectly normal. Not a single <clears throat> abnormality, which was a miracle, because she, her lungs hadn't been developed. 
She was a level three leader. She, her brain hadn't fully segmented. All of that resolved. That's wild. Again, another divine intervention. Sure. So I know we're running, uh, we're running long, Lee. If you want me to speed up, I can. But uh, you tell me how we're doing as far as pacing. You know what, Jeff? Just keep going on, man. Uh, what okay. I, what, okay. if, if you go really long, what I may do is split, split it into two okay. podcasts. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump now to uh, headquarters. I was given orders to uh, 22B Special Operations, and I was to be Jim Austin's deputy. Oh, deputy Jim Austin, good man. Yeah, Jim Austin. Um, just some of the highlights. Since I had all the contacts and I had been involved in these operations, I felt very much at home. I was really enthusiastic about trying to share some lessons learned. Uh, when we had our first training program, case officer program, I called my buddies over at the agency and I said, look, I want, I want to make this realistic. Mm -hmm. So we actually got a former Soviet bloc intelligence officer to come over and be in our class and role play with the students. Oh, that's great. Unlike just being lectured by me or somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I think they really got a lot out of it. Um, about this time, um, we were doing reviews of all the regions, and we noticed that for some reason, Europe couldn't get a single operation off the ground. Mm. And um, we sent a, a classified memo over to CIA headquarters and said, look, there's a problem here. Our operations aren't working, and they should. Mm -hmm. We got a letter back saying, look, everything's fine on our end. We think you have a security breach in your communications center. Well, years later, we found out about Mr. Aldridge Ames. Oh, sure. Aldridge Ames was a CI referent in the Rome Embassy, and our people were briefing him on our operations, mm -hmm. and he burned every one of them. Mm. So that's why nothing was working. And it shows the value of compartmentation, to be honest with you. You really have to keep things down to a small circle of need to know. Because you, you never know who you're dealing with, to be honest with you. One of the, um, the operations that I'll always remember um, was really the, um, the brainchild of Jim McFarland, who's one of my desk officers. Mm -hmm. uh, Desert Storm was going full blast. And he came up with a concept. He said, you know, we should support this with a counter-espionage operation. So he came up with a good, a good concept. We massaged it. And then he connected with uh, the late, late Ruben Diaz. And long story short, we were able to, long distance, through a lot of stick and rudder, get this operation in contact. It was successful. We knew it was successful because we were notified by the agency that um, uh, they had picked up some intercepts from Iraq um, uh, and also from the Israelis. And the Israelis were concerned that there was an American spy. So just sit tight, don't worry about it, everything's fine. The operation was successful and um, I would say that probably saved hundreds if not thousands of lives. Marine and, and naval personnel because of what the operation accomplished. I can't really go into it. Sure. Never been declassified. I'll say that the asset, who was a Marine Corps captain, got the Legion of Merit. Mm -hmm. And NCIS as an organization got a uh, meritorious unit citation from the uh, Director of Central Intelligence. I, I, that was I, I'm aware of that operation. Great yeah. operation. We can't talk about yeah. it, but it was right. a very, very good operation. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope our youngsters 
that are doing these sorts of things look to that and, and, and recognize what can be done. Mm -hmm. This is purely an issue. Another thing I'll mention, and this is, uh, it sparked my, uh, my interest when I heard one of your previous uh, guests, uh, Admiral Tom Brooks. Yes. One of, the, uh, one of my um, duties as the Deputy Chief of uh, 22B was, I had to give a yearly brief to the DNI. Mm -hmm. So um, it was my turn in the barrel, and Admiral Brooks was a DNI. Oh, wow. And to be honest with you, I wasn't looking forward to it. <laughs> because I sensed a sort of standoffishness sure. from the whole DNI shop, yeah. but I, I did my best. I put together an op or a, a briefing that I thought would, would work. So I go over and I start talking about our program, and, and Admiral Brooks was there with his arms crossed, and you know he was politely listening. Mm -hmm. I could tell he was bored. <laughs> and then I got to the point where I talked to him how we envisioned professionalizing the agent corps when it came to counterintelligence, how we wanted agents to go in, learn the criminal um, arena, and then go into CI ops, investigations, collection, uh, run ops, be a, be a desk officer, go overseas, and have a very clear uh, career progression. And as soon as I started to say that, his arms unfolded, he leaned forward, his expression on his face changed, and he said, that's exactly what you need to do. He says, because if you don't do your job and do it right, somebody else is going to do it for you. Yep. And so everything was fine after that. I finished the brief. I got back to headquarters, and I'd just gotten back upstairs to the fourth floor. Mm -hmm. Jim Wilson came in and he said, hey, Admiral Shackney wants to see you. This is at the time when we were still out of military community. Sure. I said, well, what's up? He says, uh, and I just called and told him that he had to see this brief. I said, okay. So I went down and I briefed Admiral Shackley, and to be honest with you, I don't think he got it. Yeah. He listened, he was polite, but it didn't register with him. Mm -hmm. But, say la vie, it registered with um, Admiral Brooks, and from then on, we had a great relationship. Sure. Um, we had um, a, 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 an active operational um, relationship with Bill Mantor, who was a deputy DNI, and he was a huge supporter and he was intimately involved in some of our operations. I can't go into detail here, but um, we had a good relationship, and I hope that's continued over the years. Um, one of the things that I noticed early on was, uh, even back in the Philippines, was that uh, Congress recognized the importance of counterintelligence and how we needed to protect everything mm -hmm. in the Department of Defense. So they came up with the FISA, the Foreign Counterintelligence Program, and they came up with money. And so we would get fenced funds. Congress would give the Department of Navy down to us, fenced funds for so many bills, for CIA, uh, CIA agents. And unfortunately, I started to see how some of that money was being siphoned off mm -hmm. and used for other things. And that was, a, it was kind of a cat and mouse game. I understood we needed to keep all of the programs running, but it was kind of disappointing to see the way we were uh, using taxpayers' money. Sure. I'll briefly touch on another case um, that I know almost no one knows about. Um, when I came back from overseas, I told our analytics shop, I said, look, we've got a spy out there. I can, you know, um, we know there's a spy. We know that he had a meeting with a, a known 
hostile intelligence officer. We know where they met. We just don't know who this individual is. Mm -hmm. So at the time, it was Ron Brunson and Rob, uh, Bob Beatty. John Beatty, excuse me. John Beatty, sure. John Beatty. And so they spent a year doing an excellent job of digging through ship visit logs, all sorts of things. And they came up with a Marine Corps uh, major who was at the location where we knew this meeting took place and who fit all the criteria for recruiting and spy. So um, I said, all right, I, I asked Jim, I said, I, I'd like to go down. And he was at Pensacola. I said, Jim, I want to go down and do an interrogation. So I do it. So before I went down, I started working with um, Dr. Mike, Mike Heyman. And he was the chief of psychological support services at the agency. At the time, we didn't have Doc Ellis. Right. So I used, used him as a sounding board. I said, I think we may have a major espionage case. Please give me some feedback on how you think he'll respond if he's guilty or if he's innocent. So he was very helpful. Mm -hmm. So with all that in arm, and, and I had some graphics put together, I got Chuck Davis to be the second uh, interrogator. Uh, we called the guy in, and I got him through his rights. He was very shocked, and got him to... Uh, Waive his rights, and then I walked him through the events of the day, and he said, "Yeah, I was there. I know. I know what you're talking about. I was there on that day." And I'm thinking, "We've got him. Here we go. We got a major spy case." Well, as the interrogation continued, he explained that he was there to visit an orphanage, and so I sent word. I said, "Hey, find out if there's an orphanage in this area." Sure enough, there was an orphanage. Mm. And as the interrogation continued, I, I I had that sense, like we all get when we're doing. This guy's telling the truth. So we finished up. I locked him into a, a sworn statement where he denied everything. Had a polygraph examiner standing by, ran clean as a whistle on the box. And then we went to his poor family. Now, this guy had been given orders. He was going to go to Iraq. He was going to go behind enemy lines and be a spotter. He was going to set up through his uh, through the, the equipment. He was going to he was going to light up targets for uh, aircraft to uh, launch their precision, precision munitions against. Hmm. So this was potentially his last weekend alone with his family. And they were wonderful. We moved him out of their home, put him in a hotel by the beach, and we went in. We, we didn't physically damage the place, but we searched it from top to bottom. We even hmm. x-rayed the walls, hmm. the linear junction detectors. And this guy was as innocent as a driven snow. And I bring this up because some people, certainly people that don't know our business, seem to think that if you don't get a conviction, that you haven't done your job. And I would say, as long as you get the facts, and they're correct and they're accurate, if you prove that somebody is innocent, that is important as proving that somebody is guilty. And that's part of our job. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the public and maybe even the Asian court. So we let him go, and I, if I had had the... Um, your power, I would have given him a medal on the spot because wow. I'm so professional. So as I was getting ready to leave um, uh, Pensacola, I get a call from Jim Austin. He said, hey, Jeff, uh, Bill Warchuk's sending you to the Pentagon. I said, what? Yeah, we have a billet over at OSD and we need you. Well, in those days, you just do what you're told. So I get back and I end up... Um, uh, replacing Diana Collins, who had only been there a short time. Mm -hmm. 
did replace Bob Thompson, who literally set up the bill. So I, uh, I went and I reported to the, the counterintelligence directorate of the office of the assistant secretary of defense for command, control, communications, and intelligence, 3CI. Uh, we were on the uh, third floor, C-ring uh, of the Pentagon, and my responsibilities were I was the Deputy Assistant Director for Operations. Now, that's a real impressive title, but <laughs> I soon learned that the, the, the longer your title is, the less important you are. <laughs> it's better to be director or so. That was fine. Yeah. And, and my responsibilities were really program management and, and creating policy for the entire offensive counter-espionage program. So I did... Um, evaluations, I looked at all the operations, and I literally gave a report card. And some of them I, I, I gave them D's, because they weren't doing well. Mm -hmm. But right around that time, um, they created a new billet, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Counterintelligence and Security Countermeasures. And that was a really good move, because people were starting to recognize that counterintelligence is very important. It should not be treated as sort of a subset of intelligence. Uh, it's, it's sort of a pet peeve with me that CI is sort of like the red-headed stepchild of the national security community. So um, it was a real, uh, real education. I, I got to see how directives and instructions were formed, kind of like uh, watching sausage make, being made in a, in a factory. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things that um, I, I soon learned that getting the wording in a directive or an instruction was very important because that would lay out what specific unit, command, or department uh, would have what specific authorities and jurisdiction. And if you didn't make sure that your equities were looked out for, you'd be written out of a, of a whole career or a whole field, wow. a whole discipline. Wow. So you had to go over everything with a fine-tooth comb, You'd have to do a back and forth. And it's important, too, because your budget depended on your mission. Mm -hmm. And your mission depended on what you were told your authority was in these directives, these instructions, and in some cases, the executive order. So mm -hmm. it's very important to stay on top of all this. Sure. Um, one of the things that we had to do was we had to keep the Secretary of Defense informed of any major CI events. And there was a specific format. He would get a one-page document. Mm -hmm. It had to be specific. So if there was going to be a major arrest, if there had been a defection, if there had been some sort of major development, we would prepare this document, and I'd literally walk it, or one of my colleagues would walk it down to SecDef's office and get it to him. Well, it's to his staff, not the indirect. Sure. Well, one of the um, um, duties that I had is every year I had to prepare one of these papers and explain why we should not release Jonathan Pollard from prison, mm -hmm. why he should not be paroled. And I would lay out all the scores of TS and SCI documents that he had compromised, the damage that he had done, and I would compare it with, say, a sailor who was convicted of trying to deliver classified not even making uh, making the con uh, the deal, not consummating the act, make it six years. So we laid it out, and every year, Pollard's uh, deal for uh, parole or um, clemency 
they were they were just denied. But as we saw later on, he's been let out. One of the things, uh, one of the cases that was a real eye, eye opener to me was um, a deputy undersecretary of defense uh, that was involved with special programs came up to us, and at the time, Dave Burke, who was the deputy CI director, sent me down to meet this guy. Down, uh, he was down in the skiff. He said, "Look." Um, he showed me the Washington Post. He said, you see this front page article? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. He said, that's, that's a presidential finding. That's a, that's, a, that's a covert action program that's been fully compromised. Mm. This is bad. We need to get to the bottom of this. How did this happen? So after some uh, um, internal uh, conferring, I convinced Dave Bird. I said, NCIS is the perfect organization to do this. So headquarters sent over Bill Homburg and a team of really good agents. So we all went down, we got right into the program, and then they, they started their case. They had a great plan, and one of their steps in their, in their investigative plan is that they were going to go up and brief uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who happened to be Colin Powell. And they needed to do that because they were going to start polygraphing people who had been read into this program, and there were some senior flag officers. Well, as soon as uh, General Powell was briefed on their plan, he exploded. Mm. He said, absolutely not. No polygraphs. And he was just livid. And from what I was told, I wasn't in the meeting, but I was told it got ugly. And he lost, he lost control. Oh, wow. So they came back down, and it was discussed. And, of course, I'm, I'm a low-level person in the pecking order, and I didn't have any power. I said, I, my, my bill was, keep it going. Don't let this stop. But uh, higher power said, no, let's shut it down. Mm. And polygraph people, we can't do it. And I always remembered what uh, General Powell did, and I wondered, why did he react that way? Yeah. Was there, you know, makes you wonder, mm -hmm. where did that compromise come from? Wow. So anyway, um, uh, we went on, and... Um, I continued to do my, uh, my thing. Uh, I was very fortunate to have exposure to a wide range of experiences in the community. For example, I was, uh, they asked me to serve on the National Non-Proliferation Center's Resource Subcommittee that dealt with counterintelligence. And then from that, I chaired a DOD uh, working group uh, focused on uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I also worked with the first joint pub, uh, 2-1, which was really the Bible. It was the cookbook, if you will, the instruction manual that a commander would pull when there was a war or a massive um, operation. And it delineated who could do what in a theater of combat. And I can tell you, we had some knockdown drag out battles. Um, for example, we got to the point where we described in the, uh, the joint pub, the directive, what would happen if there was an espionage case in a combat zone? And the Marine uh, representatives said, well, the Marines are going to take it. said, fine. You know, 5520.3, our uh, DOD yeah. SECNAV instructions is very clear. So I had to beat back these, if you will, incursions into our jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons for that, which I'll talk about a little bit here later on. But... Um, uh, there were other people that just sat back and were very passive, and I, I, I just couldn't do that. You had to fight to keep what you had, much less to gain anything else. 
Another thing that I got to do is I look back, I feel really privileged. I used to attend what was called the NAGCI, the National Advisory Group for Counterintelligence, and that met in the seventh floor, the Bureau. And the agency and the Bureau, they had all the S their SESers there, and below me was there for OSD. And uh, one of the um, projects that we came up with, um, the leadership said, you know, we're having all these spy cases. We really need to evaluate the effectiveness of the counterintelligence program from soup to nuts. We need to look at every agency. So I ended up being um, assigned the Department of Energy. They said, we want you to go out and we want you to evaluate their program. Tell us what you think, because they have all these nuclear secrets. So I flew out to Las Vegas. Um, I got a tour of their, their headquarters, and they brought in a retired nuclear test director. And he took me on a guided tour. He took me into tunnels. One was all rigged up with a detonator inside that they were getting ready to test. And really kind of lifted the veil and explained to me how all of the uh, nuclear tests were being done. And I also, I also got a chance to see where the um, Russian um, arms control representatives um, were, were um, housed. I saw a lot of program weak areas. I went back. And uh, whether they were ever rectified, I don't know, but it was a great experience. Another thing that um, another um, opportunity that I had was they had me chair the Operation Chiefs Working Group. Uh, this, got to, this brought together the heads of um, the agency, the Bureau, OSI, Army, FCA, and NCIS. And we literally sat in a skiff, like having a poker game, and everybody would kind of lay a few cards on the table and say, well, this is this operation, this is that operation. They would describe the operation, and then we would kind of compare notes. And um, it, was, it was a good experience. And I got to see the dynamics at the senior levels between the various organizations. And um, sometimes it was not good. Mm -hmm. I remember one uh, office chief's meeting where uh, a bureau and an agency SES got into an ugly, heated shouting match. Mm -hmm. And you could see the, see the animosity and the friction bubbling up under the surface. And that later came out in very, in very public ways. By virtue of being a, the chair of this organization, um, I knew some people in the CI Center, in the CCI Center, and they said, hey, we'd like you to participate in a CI survey of one of our stations overseas. And I said, are you serious? Because no one had ever done that. I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I literally got read into um, everything that was in the CI Centers. They had mobile files, I read other files, went to Army. Went to OSI, of course, I looked at NCISs. And I also went over to the Bureau. And um, I thought, oh, they're not going to share anything with me. <laughs> and they ended up uh, a very friendly, very nice senior agent, brought me a whole stack, dozens of operations that I went through and made notes. And um, he gave me his card. And I just kept it like we all keep our cards over the years. And then um, I went on my way. Years later, as I was cleaning up some, some old memorabilia that I had, I found this card. It was Robert Hansen. Holy Moses. Yep. Very friendly, always smiling, 
and now I know why. <laughs> probably thinking to himself, these operations are all burnt to a crisp. Yeah. You're, wait <laughs> you're wasting your time. I've already turned them over. Wow. But uh, it's funny how you have these encounters with people, and, as you, and you look back and say, wow. Anyway, um, I, did the, uh, I did the inspection and the survey, and some of the uh, people in the, uh, the agency were not receptive to um, our way of doing things, but I think I, I finally won them over. Mm -hmm. One of my recommendations in my outbrief out in my report was that we needed a full-time DOD counterintelligence agent in that particular embassy. And lo and behold, they made it happen. Hmm. So right about this time, I was talking about the animosity. Right around this time, um, Elder James was caught. Hmm. And there was a huge firestorm. The Bureau was pointing fingers at the agency. You should have told us. This is an espionage case. You ran it unilaterally. So things got real ugly. And there were a series of backdoor, closed-door meetings on the Hill, and every day, the Bureau, the agency, and then John Elliff, who at the time was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for CI and Security Countermeasures, and Dave Burke would go over and engage in battle and try to sort out and reorganize the CI community. Um, and I think we did okay. Um, one of my jobs, along with the other guys, was to draft um, language, hey, this is what we need to keep. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so important. Because people tend to forget that um, over 95% of all classified information that's generated by the U.S. government is generated by DOD. Wow. And we have the lion's share of all the sensitive technology. We have the war plans. We have the facilities. We have the weapons of war, the ships, the airplanes. So we have a whole lot more to uh, protect. Quite frankly, we should have a, a counterintelligence capability that's just as robust. Mm. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. But what ended up from this um, backdoor um, uh, summit, if you will, is that Presidential Decision Directive 24 was created. It was U.S. Counterintelligence Effectiveness. And one of the entities that was created was the National CI Center. And it specifically spelled out that the FBI would be the director, but the deputy director position would rotate among DOD. It also created the National CI Policy Board and the um, CI Operations Board, and also the counter-espionage group, which was to be housed inside CIA headquarters, which was really a good entity. But one of the, one of the memorable um, moments that I, that I recall from being in the Pentagon is Number one, I could go just about anywhere with my badge. Sure. And I could go down to the press room, and I could walk in during a press conference if I quietly went in on the side. Mm -hmm. I could sit back behind the reporters and watch SecDef or whoever it was. And one morning, uh, I got word that uh, Sean O'Keefe, Secretary of the Navy, was coming over at a press conference. I made sure I went down and got a seat. Mm -hmm. And um, this is right after Tailhook. Sure. And I watched live as he announced that NIS would become NCIS. Wow. And to be honest with you, my heart sank like a rock. I thought, oh, no. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. That's a goofy name. It makes us look like we're subordinate to DCIS. Uh -huh. This is the kiss of death. Uh -huh. We're done. Uh -huh. And then he announced that we'd have a civilian director. I thought, well, that's okay. 
I was convinced that that was just absolutely the worst thing to do. Oh, wow. Well, fast forward today, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> that was a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, but as you know, one of the things that I, I noticed was that um, NCIS does a great job in many areas until you get to public affairs, public relations. Mm -hmm. It's always been our weak point. It got stronger during Dave Brandt's tenure, mm -hmm. but it's still never been very good. And really, Mark Harmon's been our PAA officer the last 20 years, Interesting. not us. One of, the, one of the things that I did was, uh, again, it was just out of, out of anger and, and frustration, mm -hmm. is I created, uh, it was a formal program, and there was a DOD um, program memo that was fully coordinated, and I created the um, DOD Counterintelligence Public Affairs Program, and the whole point was to take our operations, investigations, all our successes, to make them unclass and get them out to the press. Sure. And it wasn't to say, oh, gee, look how wonderful we are and pat ourselves in the back. It was to show the taxpayers, this is what we're doing with your money. Mm -hmm. This is how we're protecting the people that protect you. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, a guy by the name of Maynard Anderson, who was at the deputy undersecretary level, big friend of um, NCIS. Mm -hmm. He was wonderful. He, sh he showed me how to do it. He read my drafts, and I got it through. I got it approved by, uh, at the uh, assistant secretary level. Mm -hmm. But just, just as my, uh, my briefing program in Norfolk was left with a new agent, the program was approved right when I was leaving. Yeah. So my new, uh, my replacement, was an was uh, they were giving it to a new OSI lieutenant colonel, and when he got the got the program, he just had that deer in the headlights look, and it just died. No, he didn't do anything on it. It was sad. Yeah. But um, as as the years went by, I was in the Pentagon for three years. You start to realize that, man, I'm losing perspective here. I'm here in the Beltway. I'm a desk jockey. <laughs> I'm not in the line of fire. Okay, I'm going out and I'm doing a few things in the field, but. I'm losing perspective, yeah. and I didn't want to see me get caught in this cycle of, all right, you need to go here, maybe get promoted and go there, and be in the beltway the whole time. And I told Tess, I said, i got to get out of the Pentagon. i got to get back out in the field. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the Iraq job in Manila came up. And also at the same time, the school where my um, oldest daughter and middle daughter were attending remote primarily my oldest daughter, the, um, the uh, discipline was starting to go down. I didn't like what I was saying. Yeah. And I said, let's get them out of here. Let's move. So I put in for a red, um, Manila job. And I got all this pushback. What are you doing, Walton? Are you crazy? How do you want to go out there? That's, that's, that's a step backwards. Stay here. And right about that time, I got a call from Mike Scanlon. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Mm. But Mike was an icon in Army intelligence and counterintelligence. He ran uh, the FCA program for years. We were good friends. Mm -hmm. Today, Jeff, uh, they're cranking up a, um, a big uh, damage assessment team for Ames. We want you on it. I said, Mike, I said, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go nuts. <laughs> so I, I deferred. I said, no, uh, I'm out of here. So I got orders. Um, I went to Manila. Um, <clears throat> I, when I walked in, uh, the ambassador was John Negropata. Is that name ring a bell? 
Slightly, yeah. Yeah, he went. He was formerly the assistant secretary of state for um, Asian affairs, uh-huh. and then he was um, ambassador in Manila. He went on to be the ambassador of Iraq during the reconstruction when all the that's where I heard his name. Okay, and so he was the ambassador, and then from there he went on to be the first director of national intelligence. So he was. Uh, I would say he came from the blue blood line mm-hmm. of the State Department, very prim and proper. So I came in to be one of his section chiefs, and one of the first words out of his mouth was, um, "What are you? What are you planning on closing the office?" And I had been warned by my successor, Mike McDonald, this was coming. Uh-huh. I said, "Well, Mr. Ambassador, we're not we're not planning to close the office. As a matter of fact, I think that NCIS can make a a major contribution." And I clicked off some. Some items. I said, DOD is still in and out of here. Um, there's still a lot of activity that we can handle. So he kind of looked at me like, okay, well, we'll see. So um, uh, right after that, things started happening. It, we had the uh, 50th anniversary of the Leyte landing where MacArthur came back ashore to the Philippines, the famous I Will Return sure. Act. And so everybody from SecDef, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admirals, generals, huge uh, contingent of, of flag and seniors came out, and I was very fortunate to have Jamie Perkins, Jamie as a second Perkins, agent. Jamie Perkins, and he was an expert at uh, PSDs, and boy did he shine. He knew what to do. He was literally running things. State uh, Secret Service deferred to him because he was so well wired. Then we started. To, then we had President Clinton and Hillary Clinton and uh, Secretary of State Warren Christopher right after that. And the Secret Service went to Jamie and let him run the entire evolution of President Clinton speaking at the Veterans Cemetery along with then General um, or President uh, Ramos. A little, uh, a little history note. This is something that most people don't know, but NCIS occasionally we, uh, we have pivotal roles in the history of, of our relationships with countries. And one little microscopic event was I was approached early on when I got to Manila by the naval attache. His name was Captain Jim Ellington. He said, hey, Jeff, I know you've been here before. Uh, do you know anybody up in Subic? I said, well, yeah, I know a few up there. People. He said, well, I said, why are you asking? He said, well, Admiral Clements, Com 7 Fleet, wants to do some feeling out to see if the Philippine government consider allowing ship visits to come to start again. Yeah. I said, well, I know, I know the, um, in passing, I know the administrator of the Subic Bay Metropolitan Authority, uh, Dick Gordon. I said, yeah, I know. I know him well enough to go talk to him. So I, I scheduled a private visit, met Dick, very friendly, and I told him what uh, Admiral Clemens wanted. He said, yeah, bring him back. We'd love to have you. Then he proceeded to give me a tour of Subic. And it was eye-opening. All these businesses had come in. They had refurbished some of the old BOQs and made beautiful hotels out of them. He said, look, we, we want you back. As a matter of fact, we have all of the ship handling equipment that used to be at the ship repair facility. And we actually had the people that used to handle it still working here. So I went back and sent word up through the EAO shop. The next thing I know, Admiral Clemens came down with a contingent and we ended up driving him 
uh, essentially in civilian clothes, low key. Mm -hmm. We drove up to the uh, uh, SPMA, had a private meeting with Dick Gordon, and they said, hey, please come back. We'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. Went very well. He had a nice tour. Went back. He fired off a message to Admiral Zlatiper, who was St. Pac Fleet. And the next thing you know, Admiral Zlatiper came out. And I got back in touch with Dick Gordon and said, Dick, you know, St. Pac Fleet wants to see you. So this time we weren't private. We, we took off uh, from the embassy compound and the helo, uh, the admirals in full uniform. We landed, and Dick Gordon had really uh, set up a tremendous welcome. People out there laying, putting lays around us like we were the lost <laughs> saviors of the Philippines. It was kind of overdone, yep. but a uh, big banquet, and uh, the same message that Dick Gordon said to uh, Admiral uh, Clements, come back. So long story short, then Admiral Mackey came out. Same pack, mm -hmm. same thing. So uh, by May of 1995, I was standing on Lava Pier with the Com 7 Fleet PAO and the Naval Attaché welcoming the first ship back to uh, Subic Bay. And so that just set off an entire uh, chain of events. And another slice of history that people probably don't know, that when the bases closed in 1991, the last man off the base, the last U.S. person off the Subic uh, QB complex was Bob Thompson. Wow. He literally turned off the lights. So we were the first off, and we were also, our agency was involved in getting the ships back. And so from then on, it was uh, busy, busy, busy. Um, we did a lot of, of operations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but one of the things that I tried to do was revitalize our, um, our relationships with the Philippine, at that time now, the Philippine National Police. And there had been a rash of high-level kidnappings. Mm -hmm. Rich people were being kidnapped and held for ransom. So we got the stat team to come in and put on um, a hostage rescue training, and they just ate it up. Trained hundreds of officers. Uh, the Filipinos were, were hungry for training, and it really put us in good stead. Uh, another thing that um, happened while I was there uh, it could be potentially something, a learning point for uh, the new agents. I got word uh, from our uh, WFO in, in D.C., Washington Field Office, that we had an espionage suspect in the DAO shop in the consulate in Hong Kong. And my first reaction was, how long has this been going on? Oh, we've been looking at him for over a year. Oh, thanks for telling me. <laughs> they wanted to come out. Wow. and work the case, I said, come on. I said, you, you're welcome to come out. Let's work this together. But if he's in our AOR, we're going to handle the case. So we, they came out, uh, an NCIS agent and a DIA analyst. They did a good job. And they presented a convincing case of why this guy might be working for a hostile power. So when it came time to do the interrogation, I was setting things up. And the DIA analyst said, I want to be in there with you. And I said, look, I'm glad to have your help. You can feel free to send me notes, but this is an interrogation. This could go to trial. I don't know you. You're not an agent. You're not a sworn law enforcement officer. I'm sorry. This guy got indignant. 
he ended up firing off like a 13-page letter of complaint. Oh, boy. But hell, I was the worst, worst um, non-team player in the world. And I said, look, you have your job, I have my job. This is a law enforcement function. It's a counterintelligence case. This man may go to prison. If we go to trial, this has to be done right. Plus, I don't know what you're going to say during the interrogation. So um, I went ahead and did the interrogation, but um, I didn't get a whole lot of support, to be honest with you. I mean, headquarters said, well, you could have handled it more diplomatically. Well, no means no. And you get to the point where you say, yeah, we're not doing it. So anyway, my, my, my message to the young agents is the old saying that you would hear, go alone and get alone doesn't always work. And yeah, you want to be a team player, mm-hmm. but there are times where your jurisdiction is clear and you need to stand on that. But just because you want to be a nice guy or a nice gal and help, you don't want to ruin a case for an operation just for friendship or for interagency camaraderie. Sure. Anyway, I, a couple of other things that I, I, I think uh, would be interesting to your listeners. We re, um, reinitiated uh, narcotics um, eradication operations. Okay. And what we did is we partnered with Philippine Air Force and, their, and the Narcotics Command and we provided thousands of dollars to pay for their fuel. And we would fly up into the mountain provinces. Mm-hmm. We'd go into the mountains. And then teams would would uh, disembark from the helos and go in and cut down acres and acres of marijuana. Mm. This was a cash crop for, for the NPA. And so we did it. Um, and rather than just sit back and um, sit at the, the uh, uh, Philippine Air Force headquarters there. I said, I want to go out and I want to see what's going on. I mean, we're paying for it. Mm-hmm. So I got on one of the helos, I flew out, and uh, I'm not sure if it was deliberate, but they dropped me on the top of a mountain. <laughs> and there was, <laughs> there was there was no easy way to get down to the plateaus where the, uh, the marijuana was growing. So I was literally <laughs> digging my fingernails in the mud roots to get down oh, about a 50-foot drop. And then um, after this group cleared the uh, field, and there, were, there were tons of this stuff. Um, they loaded this one H1, this Huey, with, uh, with marijuana. They just stacked it in there. Sure. And they said, sir, would you like to go back? I said, sure. So they said, get in. So I'm looking, there's no seats. Uh-huh. So I kind of jumped in, and I landed on top of this big stack of marijuana, kind of <laughs> like a cat holding onto a screen window. They lift off, and this helo banks hard to the right, oh, and I start sliding <laughs> toward the uh, the, uh, the uh, open door. Oh my goodness! And I, I and I look and I look back and I thought because I used to be an aircraft mechanic, sure. And I knew that there were hydraulic lines above me. I didn't even look. I just reached up and I grabbed something, and I held on literally because <laughs> my feet were starting to dangle out of the door. <laughs> and then the the helo straightened up. And we landed, and I didn't say a word. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to look like a you-know-what. So I said, hey, thanks a lot, guys. And then at the end, they had a big ceremony where they burned tons of this stuff. And a lot of the villagers would come up and go downwind, and everybody's having a party, taking deep breaths, nice. and uh, having, a, having a good old time. So. Um, oh, my goodness, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll finish up. 
my time in Manila. It was a great tour. Yeah. Um, we, we had some great sources and good operations. But midway through my tour, I was up on uh, the old base. Mm-hmm. Since we had a good relationship with him, I had my own ID. I, the director of security investigations was, was Tom Benton. He used to work for the, the Department of Navy, and he was yeah. an old friend. He was great. Yeah. But anyway, I went out to the Benedictine Golf Course, and they used to have an old club, a golf course club, and I noticed it said Hollywood Steakhouse. So we went in there, and I'm having a meal. And the next thing you know, I see this guy by the name of Mike Sellers, who's a former CIA officer that I worked with. Mm-hmm. I said, Mike, what are you doing here? He said, ah, Jeff, I said, um, I resigned. He said, I started my own company. He said, I used to be in the movie business before the agency hired me. I got tired of it. I, I'm, I'm recording um, albums, and I'm getting ready to do a movie. I said, really? He said, yeah, we're going to do a movie about Subic Bay, The Final Days. I said, Mike, you, if you do that, you know you got to put NCIS in it. He said, sure, okay, no problem. So he hooked me up with his writer, a guy by the name of Bob Cooney, who was a former BBC correspondent. I, I really hit it off with him. He said, oh, yeah, NIS, NCIS? You're like uh, the um, special branch of the uh, Royal Military Police. He said, sure. I know exactly what you guys do. So I said, look, let's put, let's, let's write at the uh, NCIS into the plot. So we figured, we, we talked back and forth. We came up with a homicide. So he literally gave me the script, a big, thick pile of paper, and we came up with a homicide. Put it into the script. He sent it off to Hollywood, he got backing, and a big, and also a very wealthy Filipino family uh, put up millions. Wow. And so um, I, I, went, I let uh, Tom Orszakowski, the SAC, who I worked for at the time, I said, Tom, this is an opportunity. I said, hey, Tom, uh, um, Mike wants our help. Mm-hmm. He wants technical advice. So um, he ran it up the flagpole and 7th Fleet said, no, we don't want you to be in the movie because they're going to show bar scenes. And we don't want anyone to think that uh, U.S. naval personnel were engaged in any immoral or nefarious activity. Yeah. <laughs> so we went, uh, so Thompson, said, give Ernie Simon a call. So I called him, he was, you know, public affairs at headquarters. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line from Ernie at headquarters is, look, do everything you can to help. Just don't be... Public. So um, when the movie was being ready to be shot, I uh, went up to the to Subic base uh, with my, my buddy, my second um, agent, Bruce Cull. Mm-hmm. And it was a big Hollywood production. You had uh, James Brolin, you had um, Michael York, Radon Chung, wow. you had one of the Arquette brothers, you had the guy who was a star of Superboy, you had another star from uh, the Danny's Dumbo drop, uh, a, a big movie about sure. elephants or something. Mm-hmm. So these are all big stars, plus some Filipino stars. Mm-hmm. And they picked Radon Chung. <laughs> and she was in Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I remember. They picked her to be the um, the NCIS agent. Now, Hollywood tweaked the script because it wasn't supposed to be a female. Uh-huh. It was supposed to be a male, but you can see the wokeness starting to already come in. So anyway, <laughs> the whole large. production crew was there, and Mike called everybody over uh-huh. and said, look, this is Jeff Walton, and this is Bruce Cobb. Uh-huh. They're from NCIS. They're here to help you, but they're not here. Does everybody understand? Everybody said, okay. 
So we proceeded. I, I took all the plaques off my, um, my office walls, uh -huh. and I brought everything up. We went into the old CA-21 building where there used to be the, the NISRO, the NISRO. Mm -hmm. And we picked, and there were a couple of offices who were still the, exactly the way they used to be. Wow. So I set up an office. I put the NIS-1, the NIS-2, the NIS-3. I set it up just like you would set up an office. Sure. So they started filming, and it, it was great. Um, Radon Chung was a great understudy. Mm -hmm. um, we would, if something was said that wasn't right, we would stop the... Um, Say timeout. Say this. Don't say that. So this went on, and, and as I was, as the film was wrapping up, mm -hmm. and they were preparing for the big um, premiere in Manila, I got orders to uh, the field office in uh, Europe. Do you remember the name of that movie was? Yeah, Goodbye America. Goodbye America. Okay. Goodbye America. And Marvin Hamlish. I don't know if you remember that name. That sounds. Familiar. He wrote Mike Sellers. He said Mike. I want to do your theme song. That's a wonderful theme. I can do a great theme song. And Mike said, well, how much are you going to charge? He said, a million bucks. Mike said, that's okay. We'll, we'll find someone else. Uh, Terry Notch was the director. And um, we did a lot of uh, off-camera uh, off takes. Mm -hmm. And we had a, I did a presentation with Radon Chung. I gave her a big NCIS plaque. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a professional film crew. They filmed mm -hmm. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They gave me the tape, and knowing how things work, I had one of my CIs who was with me, Tony um, Ramos. I said, Tony, here's my personal VHS camera. Film this. Mm -hmm. So he filmed a, a, a backup cop. Well, I sent the film to headquarters, and I said, hey, show this to the director. Mm -hmm. Do what he wants with it. I called back. I said, hey, how did they, uh, <laughs> how did they react to the video? Uh -huh. And you know what I got? What? What video? What video? What? I never got it. <laughs> so they lost it. So, oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, in 97, I got orders uh, from Manila to the European Field Office. I was going to be the CICTA SAC. Um, Bob Hartley was a SAC. Um, he was a great boss. I love the AOR. But when I got there, I noticed that there wasn't a lot of uh, communication with the Navy leadership, particularly as it related to force protection, CTCI. So I started, uh, um, I went over to the Admiral, who was a commander uh, Fleet Air Forces uh, Mediterranean. He owned all the bases. At the time, it was a Rear Admiral Semko. Semko. I said, Admiral Semko, I'm your, I'm your CTCI um, advisor. Uh, I want to start a dialogue. He said, sure. So we started a uh, Force Protection Council, and every month is N2, uh, the DCOS of Rome, and myself would meet with Admiral Zemko and I'd lay out, we'd all talk about the threats that were going on at the time. And Nick Mamaris was our analyst and we got him into the um, daily, if not uh, weekly, um, Confair Med briefs down in the skiff and he would give an NCIS portion of the briefing. We had great, uh, great offices, really good people. I could spend a lot of time rattling off all the names. I was very blessed. Excellent SSAs, a lot of good agents. Mm -hmm. One um, interesting um, operation you probably haven't heard about is that we got a call uh, through our sources uh, that there was an individual claiming that a truck bomb was going to be driven into the uh, Naples consulate. 
So our guys launched an interview. This this source said he was very credible. The threat seemed seemed very real. He was Italian, mm-hmm. and um, we said, "Well, why didn't you go to the Italian authorities?" He said, "Because my brother had been falsely accused of a crime, and I don't trust them." Mm-hmm. So um, I got a hold of um, the various entities in uh, Rome. The bureau was busy; they couldn't come down. They they're not operational anyway. There's another agency up there that I consulted with. They said, hey, our referent that covers that area is gone. So I went down and briefed the Chargé d'Affaires of what we had. And she said, run with it. Protect us. Help us. Mm-hmm. So we set up a command post in Nick Mamaris's uh, apartment. I was there. Over, yeah. So you were there. So you were part of it. So you knew what happened. Mm-hmm. We did the surveillance. Um we're probably in his apartment, if I'm not mistaken. We were, yeah. Yeah, and so you remember that uh, the final analysis was we begin to, sus- to suspect that the um, informant was bad mm-hmm. as he was trying to manipulate when and where we were going to meet him. We we're trying to vet him. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, the decision was made to contact, I don't recall if it was a Carabiniere or a Sisme or Sisde, one of the entities responsible for counterterrorism could have been Uchikos, the counterterrorist police, but they got back to said, oh, this guy's a serial fabricator. He's a liar. So if you recall correctly, he was set up for a meeting and he was arrested. Mm-hmm. But it was great teamwork. If it had, if it had been real, um, I think we would have neutralized the threat or at least gotten people to safety. Well, I had one of the better un- undercover assignments. Kathy and I got to act like lovers sitting on the wall outside the consulate there watching okay okay that's right so you were there right on the ground when all that happened it was good stuff yeah it was another thing i don't know if you recall while we were both there is uh we set up the uh for the billet with osi and izmir which you subsequently took and the first agent was tom um i'm having a senior moment here uh from um he was in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. Tom Holly. Tom Holly. Yes. In fact, and um, yes, that's right. recall- Tom Holly was the first guy. Tom he was the first guy. Mm-hmm. And then I think you came in after him. Was that correct? I, I just did six months there waiting for okay. uh, Jawad Mashney to get there. Jawad Mashney. Okay. Yep. You, you also recall that that was the time of Milosevic and the huge uh, purge of the. Um, the uh, Ethnic Albanians, the Muslims mm-hmm. out of um, Kosovo, they were pouring into Albania. Mm-hmm. And I flew out and met with a task force commander, task force Shining Hope. And he was a, a Marine Corps um, lieutenant general, if I'm not mistaken. I may have the, the rank wrong. But uh, he was a two-star. And um, I still remember talking with him. And I said, we're here to support you. And they said, the one thing I need to know is um, who's watching us? Who's watching the watchers? So uh, I ended up deploying Tom Marzilli and Joe Pizzino. Um, my initial time there, I drove down to Duras, which was a, um, a port city. And that's where all of the supplies and humanitarian equipment was going to be offloaded. Mm-hmm. And um, I drove down with OSI. We were wearing a vest, full battle rattle, MP5s. We were fully armed. 
and we came up to a um, illegal checkpoint. Mm-hmm. These guys were armed, but they looked in the car. There were three of us. There were two of them. We had better firepower. So he just waved us on and on we went. Uh, ultimately, um, Tom and um, Joe set up a, um, a beautiful uh, operation in uh, Doris. Mm-hmm. Reported on all the things that were going, going on and um, it was very successful. Uh, about 2000, uh, I was selected for the um, uh, chief of the program integration office in the National CI Center. I was going to replace uh, Joe Rigo. Uh, and people don't realize that, and I didn't realize it was an SIS billet. They didn't tell me that when I bid on it, but I took it. I had an FBI 15, an Army 15, a bunch of, uh, a lot of Army, OSI, I had state and I had bureau. We had uh, all the uh, coordination of uh, overseas operations. We had CI training and we had CI outreach. When I first got there, Mike Wagaspak from the FBI was a director, but he left. The billet was left gapped and Bob Thompson fleeted up to be the director. Um, we had some really good people, but there was a cloud hanging over the NASIC when I first got there because there was a proposed reorganization that would disband the NASIC and mm-hmm. fold us all into the office of the National CI Executive. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, I, I really enjoyed the work, but I sensed a, a trend that has continued to this day. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of disagreements with my colleagues in the community, but I don't, I haven't changed my opinion. I started to see how positive intelligence, foreign intelligence, and how CI was being blended into it as if it was all one discipline. Right. Um, and I thought that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some distinct differences between a clandestine case officer and a special agent with arrest authority with counterintelligence responsibilities. Right. I'd like a, a football team. Sure. Uh, a, a coach of a football team would never allow his offensive coordinator to take over the job of a defensive coordinator, mm-hmm. just make the defensive coordinator his deputy. But that's mm-hmm. essentially what we've done in, in the CI community. Yep. So um, as time went on and this um, uh, reorganization was taking place, I saw a number of things that were not good. Mm. Uh, we had a... Um, a senior CIA contractor who was trying to manipulate the entire staff. This is an open secret. I won't mention his name. Mm-hmm. And one day he came in and he said, you know, I talked to George Tennant and George wants us to do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And at the time there was one of my fellow group chiefs was a guy by the name of Bassam Yosef. He was a chief of the administrative section of the nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he happened to know at the time the, uh, and its chief of staff, John Brennan. Mm. I'm sure everybody knows Brennan. Sure. And so we went upstairs to the seventh floor, and I, he introduced me, and he said, uh, he said, John, we were just told by this CIA officer that the director Brennan, director Brennan wanted us to do A, B, and C. And um, Brennan just laughed. Mm. Uh, he said, no, that's not true. Not only is that not true, but... Um, Director Tennant's overseas. So that's all a lie. 
So that was the sort of the environment that we were operating in. Ultimately, um, a contractor was brought in to interview each one of us. And this was, this was an admin gal. And based on, on her interviews of us, they decided who they were going to keep and who they were going to send back to their parent agency. And to this day, I just didn't think that was appropriate, but that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, they offered me a job. They said, we're, we'll keep you. We, we're, we want to start the National Counterintelligence Council. And we want you to be the first national counterintelligence officer. And your portfolio will be force protection. So I said, okay, great. Sounds like a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first national CI executive was Dave Zayden, senior FBI uh, uh, agent. Um, and something happened when I first checked in to um, the NASIC. When Joe Arrigo was showing me around, he had a big uh, four-door safe and a couple of other safes. I was going through his safes, and I got to the bottom drawer. Mm-hmm. And it was this big, thick bundle of um, standard uh, round folders. And I said, Joe, what is this? He said, oh, that's the, uh, that's the personnel file of your uh, uh, training branch chief. I said, well, why is it here? He said, because he's on administrative leave. He's a suspect in an espionage case. Oh, my goodness. I said, really? I said, who is that? He says, Brian Kelly. And I knew Brian. Mm-hmm. Brian was a former uh, Air Force OSI colonel, and he went on to be a, uh, an agency officer, and he was a chief of station at one time. So I said, okay. Um, and then as time went on, um, Hansen was uh, identified as a Russian penetration. They thought that uh, Brian Kelly was a spy and they had searched his home. Um, they found notes of his uh, jogging route and they said, this guy is it. He's, he's jogging in the same park. Mm-hmm. We know the dead drops are being um, filled. And when Brian came back, finally came back and was exonerated, he, I said, Brian, how's it going? He said, I'm not doing too well. I said, why? He said, you know, I was falsely accused, and I understand how that can happen, but all I wanted was an apology, and I never got one. Wow. You know, he was so angry that he went on national television and told his story. Good, great. And, um, you know, it gets back to when you do your job, and you declare somebody innocent, that's just as important as declaring somebody guilty. Yep. And you've got to make amends with these people. You can't mm-hmm. leave that raw wound open. And he never forgot that. I don't know where Brian is now, but uh, he was very, very upset. I but on a, on a more positive note, Dave Zaney had the gravitas as the first CI executive. And there was actually a CI board of directors that he would call together. He got the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz. He got the Deputy uh, um, Director of Central Intelligence. And he got the um, Attorney Deputy Attorney General in his office. And all they talked about was counterintelligence. So things were really on the upswing. I was very optimistic. And we were focused rightly on trying to protect the crown jewels. What's most important in the U.S. government? How do we protect our people, our programs, our technology? It was a good effort. And then 9-11 happened. And it was as if those airplanes had landed right in uh, NCIX. Because everything changed instantly. 
suddenly nobody cared about counterintelligence. Yep. Counterterrorism was the name of the game. So from that point on, it was sort of a downward spiral. Dave Zadie left. Uh, then Christine Williams was the um, uh, acting uh, NCIX, and then ultimately Tom Petro. Mm -hmm. So Tom did his best, but um, you, the country paid a price for that change in focus. Because when you no longer had an NCI executive with some clout, and no operational authority, no budget authority, that left the Bureau basically on their own. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly watching uh, James Comey, Jim Comey, give that infamous press um, conference where he laid out all of the classified documents that were found on Hillary Clinton's oh server, private server, S-I-T-S, secret. And I'm thinking back on all the cases where we had much, much less mm -hmm. in terms of damage in the prison sentences. Mm -hmm. And then after he laid it out, I thought, oh boy, here we go. This is a legitimate case. Mm -hmm. All political considerations aside, it was a very important case. And then when he said, um, with all this, uh, no reasonable prosecutor that I know would take this case, I almost threw it. Wow. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. Wow. But he had no one above him to tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, 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 time out, Jim, mm -hmm. we're taking this over. So the result of having this huge power vacuum in the counterintelligence community has created a lot of the problems that we're having today. Another example. Another example is the uh, the raid of uh, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. That's a CI case. Mm -hmm. Who looked over that? What were the circumstances mm -hmm. that justified the raid? Mm -hmm. They were talking to his attorneys. They certainly talked to Hillary Clinton's attorneys. Again, all political considerations aside, facts are facts. Mm -hmm. So I'm very concerned. We, I actually wrote an editorial uh, to the uh, um, Wall Street Journal where I laid out my, my humble opinion mm -hmm. how the CI community should be reorganized. And I basically said that you need get rid of the DNI. You need a director of national security. And under that, you need a director of national intelligence and you need a director of national counterintelligence. Sure. And that director of national counterintelligence should handle all espionage, compromise, tech transfer, and terrorism. And you can work jointly, but those cases that require potential court cases and the judicial system, you need to have someone who's appointed by the president and is not loyal, loyal to any particular organization. Yep. So that was my, my pet peeve. I was trying to develop a, a senior council of advisors to drive home the fact that CI was critically important. Um, I moved my family out of Maryland, where we were at, again, because of the schools, built our house down here in uh, St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. And I moved Tess and the girls down here, and I geo-commuted. I, uh, I was, a, I was a, um, actually living with a bureau agent, a friend of mine. Right. And about six months into the move, uh, Tess, the stress of the move and dealing with contractors, coming in and making minor repairs, it just got to her. And she yeah. developed some significant health problems. 
Oh and it got the, the handwriting was on the wall, and I got to the point mm-hmm. where I came in to at the time, Tom Petro, who was the acting NCIX. I said, Tom, I gotta leave. I'm giving you 30 days notice. I've got to retire. My, my wife needs me. Yeah. So he picked up the phone, called headquarters, and they created an annuitant billet down here at the Mayport Field Office. Okay. So I retired uh end of October 20 uh 2002. 2002, I retired at midnight at 0001. I became an annuitant. I got back, got another badge, creds, and a gun. And fortunately, they set it up so I didn't have to do the backgrounds that most of the agents had to do in the field offices in my role with CI. And I was very fortunate. I had an excellent boss, Carol Kistart, a lot of good ASACs who were my, who were my reporting senior, but they left me alone. I had, um, uh, let's see, I had uh, Chuck Howard, I had um, um, Mike Browning, I had, um, let's see, Ed Winslow, all good people to work with. Again, they gave me free reign. Um, They probably did something that was probably not administratively correct. Mm -hmm. They said, we want to make you an SSA again. Mm -hmm. We want to put people under you. And that was fine, but... Some people said, well, why is this annuitant doing this? But mm-hmm. they needed people. So I stepped up to the plate and I had an outcome squad. And then they asked me to start a new uh, operational unit. Mm-hmm. And it was great because I got a chance to work with new agents, young mm-hmm. agents, and start operations from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, um, one of the cases that we had started out as a CE operation. And a number of agents worked this asset. Now, guys like uh, Mike Harris, uh, Bobby Hyatt, I believe uh, Barb O'Connell, they all did what they were supposed to do. They kept the operation alive. We took it over, and it actually morphed into an espionage case. And this is an example of why you have to have the counterintelligence mission and all of its authorities in one organization. Because if we were a a unit just responsible for operations and we had no investigative uh, authority, we could have let it die. Uh, And maybe we would have transferred, maybe we wouldn't have. But since we had both authorities, it was a seamless transfer. So what ended up happening was the targets of the investigation were a, a Florida International University professor and his wife, Carlos Alvarez and Elsa Alvarez. Uh-huh. And they were recruited spies for the Cuban government, Cuban intelligence. And Eddie Stevens was a case agent and I was his, um, his backup. So I went with Eddie and uh, eventually uh, through our operation, there was enough evidence that was amassed uh, to go for a conviction, to go for prosecution. And the uh, US attorney at the time was Alex Acosta. I don't know if that name rings a bell, mm-hmm. but he was a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of, of Miami. Mm-hmm. And based on the evidence that we had, and based on the uh, probability of a, su- of a successful prosecution for espionage, we opted to go for the unregistered um, foreign agent prosecution. Okay. So they, um, the two bureau agents that I work with, that Eddie and I work with, were excellent. They made sure they, they arrested Alvarez, brought him into uh, 
hotel that was wired. They sat in one room, and I was in another room watching on the closed circuit TV. I was watching the interrogation, um, and Carlos confessed. And then when it was time to search the house, um, Eddie Stevens got a chance to do the search with the bureau agents. And then when they were finally brought to the federal um, facility, uh, correctional facility there in Miami, we all, uh, two bureau agents, Al Alonzo and Rosa Shirk, and Eddie and I went with uh, the uh, Alvarez couple and turned them over. And um, it was a very amicable situation. And before we left, uh, Carlos shook our hands and huh. thanked us because everything was done right. There was never any shouting, screaming, yelling. And they, they admitted to, the, um, to their crimes. And there were some Miami Herald uh, newspaper articles that laid out all the tradecraft that we found in the house. And subsequent to that, there was a major press conference down in the courthouse. It was the first time that I was ever in one. And you've seen them many times. You have the U.S. attorney at the podium. And then you have this big gaggle of all the different. And there was Eddie Stevens and I Uh and um, uh, Rosa and Al and a bunch of other people. And um, there was a live press conference. And Carol Kistard did a beautiful job of a press release where she emphasized it was a joint case, NCIS, FBI. And then as the, the press conference, excuse me. sorry about that. I'm on silent and it's not uh, working. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the CNN reporters said, uh, asked uh, uh, U.S. Attorney Acosta, he said, what was NCIS's role? And all he would say is they had a role. So that was my 30 seconds of fame. That was the 80s 30 <laughs> seconds of fame. Um, it just goes to show you, though, that these operations can be turned on a dime if necessary, and you can do a successful prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe uh, because of the plea agreement, uh, Carlos got five years and Elsa got three. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you another example that, I, that might be a learning uh, a learning example for some of your newer agents who will go up into headquarters. We had a very active CI program because we covered all of Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And um, in one of these countries, we, we constructed a very, I thought, a very well uh, put together operation CIA station involved was uh, um, very helpful. Chief of station was very enthusiastic. And so the, the, um, it went through the operations review board, got the thumbs up with flying colors. Mm-hmm. And then the last step was uh, they had a practice where 22 would send someone over to the um, SECNAV's office mm-hmm. and brief uh, an undersecretary who was responsible for CI um, FI and uh, CT. And unfortunately, when the operation was briefed, the AU, the undersecretary was told of the target and it wasn't China. And he said, well, you know, we're gonna go to war with China potentially someday, we shouldn't be doing this. And um, that was the wrong decision. 
And I, I let the uh, chief of station know, I called him on the secure line. He was livid. He said, who do I need to call? I said, it's done. It's done. He was very unhappy. I was very unhappy. And I tried to make the point. Unfortunately, it was a relatively inexperienced briefer. And the point that I would have made if I was in there is, look, the country that we're running against may not be able to defeat us militarily, but their intelligence service is first class. And they are capable of penetrating us and inflicting damage in the uh, hidden world of espionage. And once they get a hold of our war plans, they get a hold of our classified material, they get a hold of their technology, we're, we're toast because they can then turn that over to a country that is capable of potentially uh, defeating us in combat. They just didn't seem to get that. Just, to, just as, as if you were, you're trying to protect yourself from a disease. Mm -hmm. If you're in a clean area, yeah, you may be trying to keep the plague out, but you also don't want other potentially fatal diseases. It may be a little bit less severe. So that point was seen to be lost. And I hope that's, that's something that we keep in mind back at headquarters, that we're at war. We've always been at war. And our operations are an act of war. And they inflict damage on the adversary. And that should be the guiding principle when we're, when we're interacting with our superiors. But I'll get off my soapbox. Um, <laughs> um, we, um, one of the operations that we put together, and again, it was so satisfying to work with these new agents to, to CE. We put together another operation, Clay Adamson, uh, Eddie Stevens, then Rafael Mercado, J.P. Pizarre, all great agents. Um, this was an operation that supported CENTCOM. Uh, it was still active um, several years ago. I don't know if it's still active today, but uh, it's, it goes to show you that there, where there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. we, we were able to run against an extremely difficult to approach target uh, in the Middle East. And um, we figured out a way to get under their tent flap and get into the into their inner sanctum. Mm. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap this up because I could sit here and kind of um, uh, <laughs> pat myself on the back, but really it was the work of the, of the young agents. Yep. I want to give a shout out to Bonnie Brady who covered the uh, China and really rose to the occasion, had some excellent cases and operations. Um, there was a major, um, major case in Jihad of South where we saw, thought that all of our counter-narcotics um, classified material was being leaked mm -hmm. to the narco-traffickers. And we got an excellent analyst, a naval intelligence analyst, that did a beautiful job of showing how the information we were getting from the cartels, if you will, through a sensitive source, was, was no more accurate than guessing. And we were able to shut off a major, a major problem that everybody thought existed. We said, they're, they're guessing. They're good at it, but they're guessing. And so we were able to turn off a lot of wasted activity. Um, my one-year assignment turned into eight years. That's awesome. So, so I really, really enjoyed it. It was a blessing. But there's, there comes a time when, as you know, Lee, you've got to turn in your spurs. <laughs> you just know it's time to go. Mm -hmm. And when the little things, the little administrative things start to irritate you, I knew it was time. 
-hmm. And um, everybody agreed. I told Carol, it's, it's time for me to punch out. So in, um, in the summer of 2010, I uh, turned in my badge and credentials and, uh, and hung it up. So that was 30 years. Um, when, I, when I finished working for NCIS, I still had my finger in the pie for the three years uh, subsequent to my retirement. Mm -hmm. I did some uh, contract work for DOD that a lot of other agents did. I did vulnerability assessments of um, the DOD school system overseas. And then um, my life really took a, a, a major change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you get older, you start to do some soul searching. Sure. You start to look, you start to realize that you depended the mortality factor is, is there. You never know when your time is up. And I started to ask myself some questions that I think we all kind of ask one time or another, like, what happens when you die? Yeah. Uh, is this all there is? Um, is there more? Mm -hmm. uh, when did life begin? How did we get here? Mm -hmm. Is the Bible true? I grew up in the church. Yeah. Uh, what, what I was told, is that true? Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't just a passing interest. It mm -hmm. became a passion. And I ended up reading a book by a guy by the name of Bill Weiss. It was sort of the catalyst. I actually read it yep. right before I retired. And it was literally like a, a switch was flipped. Wow. And I knew that my mission, I had a mission that I wasn't done in, in life. I had a mission to do. And I needed to use what I had been trained to do in the past and apply that to a totally different field. And that was writing. Yeah. So I kind of dove in. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I, <laughs> I you know, I was a, I was a, a feel good intellectual Christian. Mm -hmm. If you had put a gun to my head and said, "Hey, Jeff, are you a believer?" I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. But it was all intellectual. There was no, mm -hmm. there was no deep connection, a spiritual connection, if you will, sure. soul sure. and spirit. So mm -hmm. I, um, I started basically my own. Uh, master's program in theology. I, I dug into everything. I looked at the, all the major religions, all the major belief systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that clearly this is the most important work I've ever done in my life. That's great. I'm glad for the, uh, the chance to serve the country. It was a wonderful privilege. It was a great experience, but it pales into comparison what I'm trying with what I'm trying to do now. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that um, I did than any agent would did would do is we're trained to look for evidence. So uh, sure. somebody might say, uh, "What are the sources of information for uh, what really happens when you die?" Mm -hmm. And as I dug through the mountain of material that's out there, I stumbled onto near-death experiences, hmm. and I was very skeptical. Mm -hmm. So I did a deep dive, and I found out that it's actually a field of scientific study. There are, there are over 50 peer-reviewed studies on the subject mm -hmm. conducted by MDs, PhDs. Mm -hmm. It's a legitimate science, if you will, or a field of science. Mm -hmm. There is actual a near-death experience research foundation run by Dr. Jeff Long. He's a radiation oncologist. Mm -hmm. He has an online database that's got thousands of entries where people can go in and use a scientifically conducted um, questionnaire that's designed to weed out fabricators. It's anonymous, and you go in and you fill out 
What happened to you? Did right. you clinically die? Okay, what happened? Explain everything in detail. And so I started digging through this database. And every now and then I'd find a, um, an entry and I'd say to myself, they're describing exactly what I just read in the Bible. And then you would look, and these people are anonymous. They're not getting paid. They're not getting any sort of fame and fortune and glory. This is anonymous. So why would you take the time to create and fabricate a false experience? It didn't make any sense. So then I began to do what any good agent would do, you would do, any agent. And I thought, I want to meet some of these people. Is this really true? So I sought out, first I sought out Bill Weiss. He wrote the book, 23 Minutes in Hell, that I initially thought was complete. I thought, ah, this guy's nuts. Nobody goes to hell. This is crazy. Yeah. But I tracked him down. I tracked him down to a presentation he was making in Southern Florida. I shot him an email. I told him who I was. And I said, I'd like to meet you. Said, sure. So I listened to his presentation. And he describes going to hell. And most people say, ah, that's nuts. But he always kept saying, he said, look, if you don't believe me, believe the Bible. And so when this was all over, I met him in private and I started hitting him with questions. Bill, what about this? What about that? I looked him right in the eyes. He looked back. He never blinked. And his answers never missed a beat. He was consistent in every area. And I thought, this guy's probably telling the truth. Because this book is very detailed. It's in chronological order. And he doesn't make any grandiose claims that he can't support other than the fact that he left his body. But um, again, there are hundreds of thousands of people that have come back and reported this sort of thing. Then I, I, I tracked down a guy by the name of Brian Melvin. Brian wrote a book called um, A Land Unknown, Hell's Dominion. And, and Brian was a, a, a very militant atheist mm-hmm. who worked construction in Tucson, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And on a construction site, he drank out of a, um, a thermos, a water jug, uh, from, on a truck that had come from Mexico. He didn't think anything about it. Mm-hmm. We got home. He got very, very sick. He was in a townhouse with some other guys. And it turns out that that water was uh, contaminated with cholera. Oh, my goodness. And he ended up dying. Mm-hmm. And he explains in great detail what happened to him. His buddies were on a trip. And he felt himself leaving his body and his dog started barking. His dog could see him. He said he remembered floating up through the ceiling. And as he got to the ceiling, he saw this uh, kind of a popcorn knockdown ceiling. But he saw a fingerprint in the ceiling and the plaster, the knockdown material that you couldn't see from the floor. Mm -hmm. So he went on to this unbelievable journey where he gets a tour of hell. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable, but when you read through it, it has a ring of truth. Interesting. So I sought him out, and I interviewed him in Colorado. I spent a couple hours with him in a hotel room. And when he gets to the point where he talks about being rescued out of hell by Christ, I know this sounds bizarre. Mm. This is what he says. He breaks down in tears. Now, you know, is he a Hollywood actor? No. No. You know, you and I can can tell usually sure. when somebody is faking it. He wasn't faking it. Wow. He breaks down into tears. He said, why me? Why, why was I saved? So I, I, it led me to other people. I talked to a guy by the name of Howard Pittman, who was a former Louisiana state trooper. He died of an aneurysm. 
I got a hold of uh, Bob uh, Woodford. I just communicated online with him. He was a former Canadian airline pilot that accidentally overdosed on prescription medication. They weren't narcotics, but died. So I started to see that there are witnesses who were coming back and saying, there is, a, there is an afterlife. There is um, a soul and a spirit that we have, mm-hmm. and you have to make a choice. So, Jeff, when, and, when, you, when you interview these guys, did you see commonalities between their interviews? Yes. Things, yes. They saw the very same mm-hmm. thing? Yes, yes. Not only did I see commonalities in their testimonies, mm-hmm. but I saw them in numerous mm-hmm. um, experiences that I saw online, both anonymous and both in um, testimonies where people would do a little YouTube video where they would actually write a little pamphlet or a book. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, this is going to sound very bizarre to your, um, your listeners, but I think people need to be exposed to this. Sure. Um, Brian Melvin described um, his, his experience in hell. And one of the experiences he had was that there is a pit in hell. Hell is, hell is huge. It's got all these different compartments and, and, and areas. But this one, one area is a huge pit. And in this pit is this circular sort of corkscrew-like channel that's dug into the side of the pit. It's miles and miles wide. Mm-hmm. And in this pit, in these grooves, there are these opaque, we call them cubes. They're about six feet high, six feet wide. They're cubes, six by six by, excuse me, 10 feet. They were 10 feet mm-hmm. and they were six feet. They were six on top of each other mm-hmm. and six deep. Mm-hmm. And in these cubes was an individual person. And if, uh, he said he initially landed in one mm-hmm. and inside it's a holographic experience. Mm-hmm. So if you were an 18th century tobacco farmer or a wine uh, producer in the, the Bordeaux country mm-hmm. and you died and you, you didn't have a relationship with Christ and you ended up in hell, your cube looked like 18th century France in the Bordeaux region. And now it would change. Yeah, he said he was able to to um, walk along these cubes. He actually had a guide, mm-hmm. a demon. I know it sounds nuts. That's what they say. Um, he would be willing to take a polygraph, by the way. I asked him. Interesting. And um, he could telepathically, he would know who these people were and why they were there. And it was absolutely gut wrenching to read this stuff because you saw people in there and I said, I thought to myself, holy crap, I'm worse than they are. <laughs> and they're in hell. I'm in big trouble. I mean, it, it was a very difficult time for me. Yeah. But getting back to your question, mm-hmm. as I dug, I found more and more people reporting the same thing. I found a gal on Facebook who said, I had this experience and I ended up in hell and I saw this big, um, uh, corkscrew type um, arrangement, I saw all these boxes. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what um, Brian, and she didn't know him. Interesting. And then there was another guy who said the same thing. He said, I was, I was in this cube and then somebody pulled it open and I realized I wasn't in this big space. I was in this cube. So I, this really fired me up. I thought, I'm going I'm to try to get the ground truth on this I'm going to try to determine, is this all bull? Is this really happening? Uh, so that led me into a lot of different areas. I'm not going to bore your audience with all the nitty gritty, 
But I will tell you that we in DOD and the U.S. government have had programs where we have learned and used the ability to detach our consciousness from our bodies and to, to, to do remote viewing. There's a, a, a several books written by our retired personnel who have been in the program. There are too many coming forward for it to be phony. Mm-hmm. So we know that the, the, the body has three components. It's the physical body, the spirit, and the soul. Mm-hmm. And when you die, your spirit and soul detach. And that basically has your DNA, if you will. So you re- reconstitute either in heaven or hell. So I, I could go on and on, but I will tell you that there are every day or every week, I find a new experience confirms what other people have said. Um, So that led me to where I am today. I got to the point where, and one other area that I really got into was evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, I really dug down into the science. I won't get into that here, Mm -hmm. but I came to the conclusion that it's false. Interesting. The theory does not work. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, there is actually a group of over a thousand uh, esteemed scientists, PhDs, who have signed a joint declaration and identified themselves that said, and they're being politically correct, we have serious reservations about the um, viability mm-hmm. and the validity of the theory of evolution. And they're on the record. Mm-hmm. And so I got into the various um, research communities that are looking at, at all of this stuff. And I'm convinced that, you know, that we're not an accident. And the one thing that, that there's two areas where a evolutionist supporter can never answer. And one is the fine tuning of the universe. Mm-hmm. Everything is so finely tuned. The diameter of the earth, the mm-hmm. distance between the earth and the moon, the gravitational pull of the moon on the earth, mm-hmm. the, 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 the amount of speed, everything. You take one of those parameters, one of those physical characteristics, and you just change it a microscopic amount differently, and the whole system falls apart. Mm -hmm. It's too finely tuned to be an accident. And the second thing is uh, a term which is really true, it's been attacked, Mm -hmm. but it's irreductible complexity. Mm -hmm. And boiled down to a few words, is that every living being is made out of proteins. And the mechanism in your body to produce these proteins in your cells is so complicated and is dependent on each, each piece needs the other piece that it would be impossible, almost impossible, for this stuff to happen to assemble itself and say some primordial loops. It just can't happen. Uh, unfortunately, the whole uh, the educational community, higher education, they're all invested in in um, evolution, mm-hmm. I say that it's wrong. I mean, how many things were we, were our forefathers wrong about? Sure. We didn't even know how diseases were transferred. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize you had to wash your hands or sterilize your hands or clean mm-hmm. them before surgery. Right. So there's so many things we don't know. The problem is we're not willing to, to discuss them honestly and openly and respect each other's opinion. That's the problem. It's mm-hmm. the censorship. So that led me to, um, to the point where I felt like I've got to get my message out. I've got to take what I've learned. Anybody could do what I did, but I was willing to put the time in 
And I want to take all this evidence and I want to get it out to the public. Mm -hmm. I want to save them the time. So I decided the only way I really can do that is to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I couldn't write a nonfiction because I have no theological credentials. They're going to say, who is this guy? He doesn't. He's a nobody. I'm not even going to read his book. Mm-hmm. So I decided to write a novel, but infuse in that novel facts. Put the facts in, but present them through my character, mm-hmm. just like Dan Brown does sure. in his books like uh, The Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. The problem with Dan Brown is he took some historical information about Jesus and he twisted them and distorted them. Sure. I wanted to be the antidote to that. So um, I had the choice. I could look for a, a, um, a publisher, an established publisher, but I didn't want anybody tweaking my book. I wanted to have complete control. Mm-hmm. So I, I joined a writer's group and, and, and did the research and decided I was going to form my own publishing company, which I did. Right. I now have Sunbrook Publishing, LLC. Mm-hmm. And then I hired on a contract basis, editors, book techs, and I, I created my first book, uh, Final Departure, Death mm-hmm. is Never on Time. Yeah. And I wrote it so that it would appeal to people like you and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the, the uh, protagonist is retired NCIS. Mm-hmm. The antagonist is a Jewish atheist. And so I don't know if you've had a chance to, to look at the book, but I think you'll see things in there that you identify with. Sure. And some of the operations and cases that I just talked about, they're in the book. Okay. I got, I got authority. I got permission from headquarters. I sent it up today. Is this okay? I had to tweak one little area. Mm-hmm. So um, I uh, put the book out and um, I got some very good, uh, very good feedback. One of the things that I did was since I didn't have all the, all the contacts and television and radio mm-hmm. and I was doing my own marketing, one of the best ways to get any kind of recognition is to get awards. <clears throat> so I, I entered Final Departure in 10 competitions. Mm-hmm. Some of them were very high level. Mm-hmm. And uh, Divine Intervention, again, it won seven awards, um, which is for a, for a first-time author, like, un- unheard of. And I give, I give credit to the Almighty. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't me, but... Um, yeah. It, when people look at the book, they think, okay, it's got to be decent mm-hmm. or it couldn't, it couldn't win these awards. So at least it must be a decent read. And most people like it, but I do get one and two star reviews. And mm-hmm. the way I look at it, it's not about the book. It's not about um, the way it's written. Mm-hmm. It's about my message. They yeah. reject the evidence that sure. supports Christianity. So oh, it, goes with, it goes with the territory. Sure. So after after that book came out, I figured I was done. You know, one and done. Mm-hmm. I got I, I got everything off my chest. And then uh, people said, hey, how about how about keep going? Yeah. So long story short, and I know we're really getting long in time here, mm-hmm. but I did a second book. I did uh, a follow on. It's a standalone sequel. Mm-hmm. And I pick up where the other book left off. Mm-hmm. And I got into some areas through my research that I didn't cover in the first book. I got into human trafficking. I got into satanic ritual abuse. Mm -hmm. I got into disassociative identity disorder. Mm -hmm. These are all topics that Christian researchers look at. Mm -hmm. I had no real knowledge of them. But as I I started to discover this, and I started to look at the research of others, 
I did the same thing I did with the first book. I started to seek out witnesses. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to people who were victims or who were, say, therapists who were dealing with this problem, I can, when I considered it to be a true subject area and it was biblically related, because at, at the heart of all this is evil. We're talking about people who commit these acts who are either consciously or unconsciously motivated by the prince of the air, say, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Yep. So I put that into the book and I'm continuing to do research in that area. So that's what I do now. I started a website. Uh, you can get to it, uh, jeffwaltonbooks.com, mm-hmm. or you can also talk, type in my logo, which is Evidence for Eternity. That's my kind of my brand. Yep. And my tagline is Defeating Deception, Upholding Truth. Yep. So, um, and your second, was, your second book was Divine Departure. Is that right? It, no, it was Divine Return. Divine Return. Uh, okay. Yeah. Death is never the end. Okay. <clears throat> and so that's out. Um, and it's interesting. I love hearing from people. Mm-hmm. I, get re- I get contacts. People ask me questions. I'm not a Bible expert, but I know how to look for the answers just like you do, just like we did in our old job. Sure. So, um, well, you know, it's, you know, Jeff, it's really interesting because I, I, one of my favorite authors is Jay Warner Wallace. Who, oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Wrote, wrote Cold Case Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, another investigator, inv- right. a former atheist, who right. is, who became a devout Christian. So right. It, it's um, I, I think your books provide that opportunity for people to to look at that and explore it and and make their own judgments. And like you said, there's right. going to be some five-star reviews. There's going to be some two-star reviews. Those two-star reviews right. are probably people that disagree. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So I'm available. If, if anybody has any questions, I welcome the contact. I understand that not everybody is inclined to um, embrace Christianity and, and the story of Jesus Christ, which quite frankly has historically confirmed well, sure. multiple times over. I mean, historically, there's no question that he existed. And I'll end on this, this note. Um, after my books were out, um, there was a little blurb that uh, appeared in my alumni um, association book for Westchester University. Mm-hmm. And out of the blue, I got a call from uh, a former classmate that I didn't even know. He said, hey, Jeff, I saw your books. Um, we, I don't think we ever met, but we were in the same classes. Mm-hmm. He said, I wanted you to know that I died of a massive heart attack about five or six years ago. And I was dead for four minutes Mm. and I wasn't on this earth. And he describes meeting Christ, communicating with him Mm -hmm. and then being brought back in his body. And he said, if you want to understand, if you want to get a real feel for what Christ is really like, Mm -hmm. watch The Chosen. He said, that's That's a great show. He says, he says, that guy nails it. He, he says the way he exudes the mm-hmm. presence, just the verbal, the nonverbal. Mm-hmm. He says, I will tell you, that guy got it right. And yeah. He's had some help. So anyone who wants to know what the world of Jesus Christ was like, mm-hmm. watch The Chosen. It's yeah. free. You can download the app on your phone. Mm-hmm. You can get the videos. And I think it will change your life. Yeah. And feel free if you uh, you want to uh, contact me, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. My books are available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. They're in some bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I'm on a mission. 
And well, I'll, I'll say this, truth. Jeff. I'll say this, Jeff. I uh, after um, watching you on another podcast, I pulled up Bill Weist, uh 23 Minutes in Hell testimony on YouTube. And if anybody wants to see his testimony, it's available on YouTube, and it's uh, it's an amazing uh, testimony. I would say. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. And as I said, I was eye to eye with him. Yeah. Wow. And did he did he fool me? Maybe. I don't think so. No. We've all been lied to. But um, I don't think so. And I, I highly recommend his book. I highly recommend Brian Melvin's book. Mm-hmm. There are a number of good authors. There's medical doctors that have come back. They all say the same thing. Their experiences are a little bit different. Some cases very different. But there are commonalities in all of them that tell me that they're legitimate. So, uh, again, I welcome the contact. Um, I do podcasts. Mm-hmm. I, um, with for other, like this one, mm-hmm. I blog so you can go on my website mm-hmm. and I do little research papers that might, you might find interesting. And I'm, I'm now in the process of creating my first book and converting it into a audiobook. It's a lot of work. I That's do my own. So, but <laughs> so you're doing your own, your own reading, my own reading, because I know what I want to emphasize and what I don't. So that's a work in progress. So it's, it's been a pleasure, Lee. Do you have any other questions? Yeah, I tell you what, it, it has been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it ran long, but that's don't worry about that. I I tell people this is your podcast, not mine. Um, I'm here to listen and and ask questions when I see them. Uh, you had a brilliant career, and what you're doing now is important. Uh, I think that uh, you, probably the most important thing you'll ever do. And right, right. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'll say this: um, if you haven't seen The Chosen. Uh, everyone should see the chosen. I'm, I'm, I'm yes. hoping that th- season three yep. will be starting yes. soon. Yes, so, absolutely. But it's a, it's an amazing show. But I really appreciate your time. I, your career was fantastic. I had the honor of working for you. Uh, learned a lot during the experience. It kind of propelled me to where I have, you know, eventually attained, you know, uh, you know high my yep. status as being a sack. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I would say that, you know, I, when I, anytime I would look at a CI operation, I always had Jeff Walton. What would Jeff Walton do? <laughs> so it was a good time. Good. good yeah. Time. Well, all right, Lee. Hey, Jeff, great talking to you. We'll, we'll talk to you real soon. Okay. Um, all right, man. It was great visiting with Jeff Walton today. And wow, um, he's really got some interesting stuff going on now. I really encourage you to uh, go to his website, jeffwaltonbooks.com. And uh, look at the material that stuff that he's working on now. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Fascinating uh, research that he's doing, faith-based research. Um, also, uh, he uh, he was a pleasure to work for, uh, as I said. And I really did um, always think about Jeff when I had an issue in an counterintelligence investigation or operation, especially when I was working the research, development, and acquisition support team at headquarters and then as the cyber operations uh, SAC, uh, special agent in charge. So it's great having Jeff on the show today, and I really appreciate him coming on. Um, if um, I really appreciate you people listening to the show and to the podcast and supporting it. Um, we're available at your favorite podcast service. Please, if there's an opportunity to give me a five-star rating, please do. Um, and leave me your feedback. I'm also can be reached at uh, NCISpodcast at yahoo.com. That's NCISpodcast at yahoo.com. Send me an email. We'll continue the discussions there. So 
Um, really appreciate you spending time with us today and uh, we'll see you next time. Stay safe, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to the NCIS Reports from the Field podcast. Really enjoyed bringing this show to you. If you like what you heard today, please go to your favorite podcast service. Do me a favor, like, subscribe, and give me the five-star rating. Give me the five-star rating helps me keep the show going, and I want to keep this show moving along. I want the the History Project to do what I intended to do, to tell the history of the organization one career at a time. So if you can do that, that'd be great. I appreciate you listening. Listen, if you want to continue the conversation, and I'd love to do that, send me an email at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week with another interesting guest who will tell their story. Until then, stay safe, everybody.